0: Good morning, please be seated. In the case of Earl Mason et al., against Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. For the appellant, Earl Mason, Erika J. Olmsted, Molly Dweck, and Adan C. Campbell. For the appellant, Sifislam Dlio, Robert J. Kincaid. For the respondent, Minister of Citizenship and Immigration, Michael H. Morris. B.J. Ray. For the intervener, Attorney General of Ontario, Judy Im, and Susan Keenan. For the intervener, Attorney General for Saskatchewan, Jonah Jonah Van Paris, and Laura Mazin. For the intervener, Canadian Council for Refugees, Prasanna Balasundaram, Barbara Jackman, Asiya Erji. For the intervener, Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, Jacqueline Neswesland, Paul Daly, Anthony Navanilan, and Jonathan Porter. For the intervener, Social Planning Council of Winnipeg, Brendan barnes Strickett, David Thiessen. For the intervener, Canadian Muslim Lawyers Association, Nassim Mituwani, and Hannah Al-Sharif. For the intervener, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Aviva Bassman and Alisa Manning. For the intervener, Amnesty International Canadian Section English-Speaking, Dalia Suhebar. For the intervener, Community and Legal Aid Services Program, Subodh Barati, Amy Mayer, Scarlett Smith. Pour l'intervenante Association québécoise des avocats et avocates en droit de, la, de l'immigration, Guillaume Tlich rivard Pour l'intervenante, Criminal Lawyers Association Ontario, Kevin Westell and Francis Mann. Uh, Ms. Olmsted. <coughs>
1: asks for this court to consider what Parliament intended when it enacted section 341e of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. Maybe you could
0: come closer to the mic because we don't hear you well.
1: Um, And so section 341e sets out that a permanent resident or foreign national is inadmissible on security grounds for engaging in acts of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada. And so this appeal in our submission can be resolved through a straightforward application of Avalov, where this court held that a failure to consider a key element of statutory interpretation can make a decision unreasonable. And the Immigration Appeal Division ignored several... Does it it have
2: to be a provision that was actually raised um, before the IAD?
1: Um, And and that will be something that I I can certainly address in my my submission. We submit um, what... You're alluding to is likely with respect to international obligations and in our submission that's not something that has to be raised before the IAD in particular because the IRPA uh, as a requirement of the Act and requires it to be interpreted in line with international law and so the IAD's jurisdiction is well,
2: That's not what it says it says in, with our international commitments
1: yes right. and so this court in B10 has held that 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 means um, the Refugee Convention, right, um, and so I, I I can address this question specifically more in detail now, seeing as it's in your mind. Um, it, there's a few more points on that.
2: I want to. I don't want to throw you off your game plan. You can.
1: Okay. Well, yeah. and so I'll. I'll, I'll, get, I'll
2: throw another wrench in the works in a while.
1: <laughs> well, and I can okay. get back to that knowing that that's in your mind, okay. um, and so. The IED, it ignored several key elements that that were raised in our submission, in particular um, before it, that showed it required a national security element when it instead allowed the provision to be interpreted broadly to any act of common criminal violence, regardless of the seriousness or if there was um, a a conviction.
2: Okay, so here comes the other wrench. Um, Before the immigration division, the parties agreed, as I understand it, to limit the scope of the hearing one question the question was if the alleged facts were proven would mr mason be inadmissible pursuant to paragraph 34 1e yes so does that essentially mean that any subsequent hearing on the merits would simply be an issue of establishing the alleged facts
1: and the application of the the facts to the law
2: right to the standard stated by the iad
1: Yes, and so, right. so just like with any definition in mind, just like in B10 when this court, inter- court interpreted what the meaning of, of okay. human smuggling was, what a reasonable definition is once, once that's reached.
2: So so it, so it was incumbent on the IAD then to, to establish some sort of legal standard under 341e? Yes, right. to,
1: to interpret what Parliament intended when it enacted the provision.
2: Can you tell me where it did that other than just saying that it doesn't have a national security nexus?
1: Sorry, what's the question? Can
2: you tell me where it actually did that and its reasons instead of just or, uh, apart from the issue of the national security nexus? Because you'll agree with me, there's more going on in 341e than that, right?
1: And so, it, what it does is it relies on the four corners of the text, and this is at tab four of the uh, the appellant's condensed book in the paragraphs 36 37 38 and 39 it repeats time and time again the plain words of this provision right so what it's doing is it's saying the definition that it's adopting in my submission is is just
2: regurgitating the language of the statute
1: exactly is
2: that interpreting a statute
1: Um, that was its interpretation of interpreting the statute
2: Was in in your submission, is that interpreting a statute? In other words, did the IAD actually answer the question that was put before it?
1: The only interpretation that can be taken from that, um, well the IAD then later in Mr. Delau's case took that to mean um, that it follows those plain words. So it's anything, and that's why in our submission it's a very broad definition
2: well that's certainly how justice grandma understood it but justice strata seemed to understand it more narrowly so 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 i and i'm kind of confused what are we supposed to take from the like what did the iad say because and this is important because you identify gaps and of course the narrower the scope of the decision the less important the gaps and the broader the scope of the decision the more important are the gaps
1: yes
2: so so before we assess, it seems to me, whether there are f- fundamental gaps, Alavavalov, mm-hmm. we need to know what interpretation the IAD actually gave to the provision.
1: And so in my submission, he, he says, he repeats this language four times. So this is at the, the last sentence of paragraph 36, and then 37, 38, yep. and 39. He says this again and again. And so that's the definition he's given.
2: But that's not a definition, is it? I mean, if I if you're asking me to interpret a statute and I just regurgitate the language of the statute, how am I interpreting it?
1: Well, he's interpreting it not to have a national security element. So that was the issue before him, and he's saying But that wasn't this the issue. Language... That
2: wasn't the issue before him. I'm sorry. I mean, paragraph four of the IAD's decision. Right the legal issue whether assuming the respondent I think this is the IED's decision yes it is the legal issue whether assuming the respondent committed the, committed the acts attributed to him such acts are caught by 341e now in paragraph 5 they narrow it to the issue of security nexus but you'll you'll agree with me there's a lot more going on in 341e than just whether there's a security nexus Sir. acts of violence, engaging in, right, that kind of thing.
1: Right, and, and the submissions put to him and that the, the decision he was looking at, the, the, the first instance tribunal, the Immigration Division, the finding had been that it requires a national security nexus and because of that, right. uh, that it wouldn't capture Mr. Mason's acts.
2: Okay, but but let's say it doesn't capture a national security nexus then it goes back to the idea and they make facts, but they now have to know what standard they're applying those facts to. Are these acts of violence? Is this engagement acts of violence? What if in fact, I mean, here it may be fairly clear with Mr. Mason, I don't know, but what if he was driving a getaway car or something like that involved in that, or he brought the weapon to the scene? Um, don't Doesn't the IED have to actually articulate a legal standard in order for facts to be applied to it beyond it's not just terrorism and national security? And-
1: in my submission, it, it has to decide the, the, the interpretation that is given to the law based on the arguments um, about how it should be interpreted it doesn't necessarily have to Im- interpret every single aspect of the provision so an example i'll give this court is interpreting the section 37 human smuggling provision mm-hmm. so this court found there has to be a material benefit but the court in the division they didn't go on to then find exactly what a material benefit means they left it for the immigration division um, to interpret that element.
2: Okay, I'm, I'll leave you alone in a minute, but I just want to take it back. So the ID, I thought the, ID, the immigration division was simply engaging in a fact-finding exercise. That was it?
1: No, the opposite. So it was also engaged with an interpretation of...
2: It was supposed to interpret, or it was supposed to apply the facts to, an interpret, to the statute as interpreted by the IAD?
1: No. So, so the first instance immigration division decision yeah. was also a legal interpretation, right?
2: No, no. no, no. Sir, I mean, after not? the IAD, after the IAD, the yes. idea was it was supposed to go back to the immigration dis- d- division for a fact finding exercise.
1: Yes. Purely fact finding,
2: and then applying it to the standard.
3: Yes.
1: I
0: believe that Justice Court has a question.
3: Was it not? I'm not re- quite.
2: I'm sorry, Chief Justice. I'm not quite done, if I may. So, how do they do that?
1: I mean, I take your your point that this decision, and and, and it it goes with our submission, that it was deficient in a lot of ways. And so we submit that the analysis was deficient, and and the ultimate conclusion, um, with respect to the guidance it's giving, was also deficient. And so this goes back to the question you asked as well about the Federal Court of Appeal, and how the Federal Court took it, and how the Federal Court of Appeal took it. The Federal Court of Appeal, Put in its own words, that it has to be something approaching a level of threat to life, um, and that's not what the immigration appeal division said. Right. And so, in our submission, that's not just bolstering reasons, which this court said in Vavilov is not permissible. That's the federal court of appeal um, not giving deference to the IED and doing what the IED should have done. Ms. Um,
3: well, decided to proceed before the board that the parties agreed that they would seek first the interpretation of section 341e yes to determine if a national uh, security nexus was required and the decision maker agreed with that way of proceeding and the same undertaking the same agreement was there at the beginning of the hearing before the appeal division yes so everybody agreed including the decision makers that they w- An interpretation, a statutory interpretation, will be given to Section 341e about this uh, necessity of having a national security nexus before going further. Yes. Okay, thank you.
1: And and that in particular was relevant because in Mr. Mason's case, that would have been determinative of if he's inadmissible or not. So that was why that was um, a fundamental issue. And one thing that I wanted to note as well is that in the later Immigration Division case for Mr. DeLauw, uh, member co was then tasked with taking the IED's guidance and applying it to that case, and in that case, there was a number of acts of violence, and, and they, they were serious allegations. At the end of the, the decision, uh, the member specifically say, states, in response to an argument that's made, that the definition would capture common assaults and uttering threats. So that's that's the, the interpretation that Member co understood from this, the statement of. of um, the IED adopting the plain language of the second part of the provision.
4: M- Ms. Olmstead, can I bring you back to your main argument about you said you started by saying this is a straight application of Vavilov and I'm, I'm wondering what's your sense of whether the reasons first approach championed in Vavilov and. Canada Post, which requires the reviewing court to start with how the decision maker arrived at their interpretation and determine whether it was defensible, whether that was done by the judge of the federal court. In arguing that, it, that the IAD is unreasonable, if I understand your factum right, but you'll correct me, you're not relying on the analysis of the, federal, the judge of the federal court. And in fact, I'd be interested to hear whether you feel, and I recognize it's a bit pleading against interest, but whether he undertook something of a disguised correctness review in his reading of it. And then, because it seems to me that you're leading us in a different direction to get to your conclusion than the way that the federal court judge did.
1: Only very slightly. And so this is because Justice Gramon's decision was issued before this court issued in Vavilov. Um, But I am still struck by how closely his language mirrored, in a lot of places, the language of this court, where he talked about these clues or indicators that show what Parliament intended, and he also talks about how important it is that the first job to to interpret these clues is given to the decision-maker, the Immigration Appeal Division, and it's only where there's a fundamental flaw in that reasoning or a gap, which I, I submit really equates to the language of this court, um, that a court should intervene. And so the I, see, I, don't,
5: I don't remember the part in Vavilov where we talked about the knockout punch. And which is, in fact, in my reading of uh, Justice Grimond's decision, the central concept. It does not appear in Vavilov. Nothing like it does.
1: That language is distracting, and that is why we we don't rely explicitly on the wording that that he used, that Justice Gramond used, but we submit that wording can be equated, it came before Vavilov, to a key element. So if we take out the word knockout punch and we put a key element that shows what Parliament intended, um, we submit that he didn't start with the IED reasons, he... What he
5: did did was did his own analysis, and then he said, here's my analysis, here's what the statutory decision-maker decided. The statutory decision-maker got it wrong. That uh, is classic disguised correctness. It it bears no resemblance to Vavilov.
1: Well, and his decision was issued before Vavilov, and so that is why we take a, different, a slightly different approach in our memorandum, where we, we do start with the reasons of the IED, and we show what the IED did wrong. Um, but the key thing that the IED did wrong, a gap in its reasons, was the detailed analysis that Justice Gramond did, where he showed the incoherence caused to the structure of the act um, by the way things are interpreted, which is something the IED did not engage with at all. It it considered, if I can get into this level of detail at this point, so the incoherence, what the IED considered was firstly that section 34, um, interpreting it to not require a conviction, it's fine that it captures conduct and not a conviction. And that was never part of the argument at all. We all agreed it captures conduct. Um, And so the question was, what's the scope of of what it should capture? And what he failed to consider, the Immigration Appeal Division decision-maker, was the substance of the illogicalities um, caused where you're bringing this broad scope uh, of conduct to be captured in Section 34, um, when Section 36 has carved out very specific nuances. And so these nuances... um, I'll just get straight into my argument, which, section 36... Just, just
2: before you do that, yeah. because you're going to tell us why their decision is wrong.
1: Yes.
2: Right, but that's not the standard. The standard is unreasonableness. Right. So let me ask you, because, because I mean, you, you, you were about to go on a correctness journey, and, and that's, that's fine, and maybe maybe an incorrect decision can also be an unreasonable decision, but do you accept that a reasonable decision can also be an incorrect one
1: and so I in my submission I was not about to go on a correctness analysis. Okay. So this but but
2: but what do you think can a, can a reasonable decision also be an incorrect one.
1: I mean I, I think the jurisprudence would accept that, yes.
2: Well like otherwise yes. why have two standards? I mean why did we have the big fight that we yes. had for years, right? Yes,
1: yes. Okay.
2: Yes. All right. So
1: and so in my submission, this court said a number of things about the robust reasonableness review that has to be undertaken. And so in talking about the illogicalities and incoherence caused, that's a key gap. So what I'm talking about is a gap in the tribunal's reasons that undermine the conclusion that it reached. And so I, I can step back for a second, though, and turn to the IED's reasons and what it did consider, which was very few things, Um, so it really relied, it said the text wasn't determinative, and then it it relied on this presumption of consistent interpretation, Um, and it said, okay, so security is used here, and then you use the words national security or security of Canada elsewhere. And, And it found this determinative. The rest of the decision doesn't go on to analyze what Parliament intended and to look at various clues and factors. The rest of the decision goes on to defend what it's found through this presumption of consistent expression, and yet there was a whole bunch of other possible interpretive elements at play here. So, Member King, in a former immigration division decision, had said, for example, well, the, word, the, the Act also uses the word public safety, where that's what it means, and so, um, and then there, there was a whole bunch of other um, points to be made here. So. The presumption of consistent expression, this court has stated in Steele, a 2014 decision of this court, that the presumption of consistent expression can be rebutted where an act has been amended decade after decade over time. And so it's more likely for there to be inadvertent variation within an act. And um, member member McPhalin also used the the recognized interpretive tool where you can look to other acts that cover a similar subject matter to determine meaning, and he looked to the Security of Canada Information Sharing Act and found that that addressed similar things and used the word security of Canada, which is a recognized interpretive presumption, which was not something that the IED um, understood that way. I, I don't think, in, in my submission, the IED didn't understand that that's an interpretive tool. Um, and, and so, in my submission, there's all of these, these other things weighing against what the IED found, and yet it was just defending this presumption of of consistent interpretation. Um, And that's all its its decision really stood on in, in my submission, and that's not reasonable.
2: So what specifically is the fundamental gap here?
1: So the fundamental gap is first the deficiency of its reasons in supporting its conclusion so relying on the, the presumption of consistent expression as determinative of Parliament's intent is not reasonable. It was the failure to then analyze things like the incoherence caused when you're looking to the actual substance of the Act. So where Section 36 sets specific thresholds uh, for what it considers serious, there's, there's a, a provision that captures permanent residence where Parliament said, there's two things one of two things required for us to call this serious enough to capture a permanent resident and that is either that the criminal code says it's punishable by a sentence of ten years or more so assault simpliciter is not captured assault causing bodily harm assault with a weapon that's captured so under section 36 we call that serious it can capture a permanent resident we have a subsection two that only applies to foreign nationals so students visitors workers or people without status that will capture um, a, a regular assault. But Parliament decided that's not it's assault Simpliciter is not serious enough to capture a permanent resident. Unless there's a second threshold, which is if a person gets an actual sentence of six months or more imprisonment, because that's an indicator of seriousness. Parliament then said even more than that, but if if as a permanent resident you've gotten a sentence of less than six months for an assault causing bodily harm, if, if you've gotten a sentence of less than six months, you still have access to a humanitarian appeal to keep your status. So, in that humanitarian appeal, we can consider the seriousness of your offense, the best interests of the child, which is required under the conventions of the rights of the child to be considered in a decision by government actors uh, before they, they, um, they act against an individual.
2: So a whole lot of gaps. Pardon me? A whole lot of gaps here.
1: Uh, that the IAD didn't consider these things and and they're all
2: fundamental within the meaning of Avalon
1: yes because so he's he's taking this vast scope of people captured by their definition so a a person who gets a one-day sentence for an assault it's not only elevated to the more serious consequences under Section 34 these people do not have access to a humanitarian appeal it's saying you're now inadmissible and you don't get this humanitarian appeal and even more than that so people who have a, a sentence of more than six months who were convicted of assault causing bodily harm unless you're inadmissible under sections 34 35 or 37 you have access to a section 25 humanitarian application so you're not completely out of luck without that that appeal to the IED. So
2: I'm, I'm sorry i'm just trying to pin you down is it the overlap that's fundamental then not the, the other stuff, the pre-removal risk assessments, the remedies, the appeal rights, they're oh, not fundamental. all of it. They're all fundamental.
1: It, every, every single
2: gap was a fundamental one.
1: They're all tailoring. And so, so I'll, I'll, I'll now turn to, the, to our international law point our argument it, because… It, Ms.
6: Olmsted, isn't the point, uh, just taking it at a higher level of generality and putting it in the uh, requirement for um, responsive reasons and intelligibility discussed in Rav- Ravlov, I understood your point to be in your factum and the way Justice Grammond addressed it is that there were important arguments put in your submission to the IAD that weren't grappled with at all. And Justice Stratus is wrong in saying that Justice Gramond uh, was wrong in that they were, they were not dealt with. So at a high level of generality, it is that there were some, some significant arguments that were advanced that simply weren't addressed. Now they, that may not suggest that there is one, only one reasonable interpretation. But it certainly gets you over the hump of showing that the reasons weren't responsive to the arguments. And it doesn't engage in a disguised correctness review. And perhaps on Justice Grammont's point about the knockout punch, perhaps it's a matter of nomenclature. It may be that a knockout punch, if one exists, is evidence of unreasonableness, an indicator of unreasonableness. But where it may be going astray, leading the, lead the reader astray, is to suggest that it's a touchstone of unreasonableness, you don't need to have a knockout punch. If there is one, great, but that isn't the touchstone of unreasonableness. Your, your point is that these important arguments simply weren't addressed.
1: Yes, that, that is our submission. Um, and, and in this case, there are so many indicators of Parliament intent, so, so I've talked about the, the, the incoherence caused by the tailoring. So to get back to, to, to the question about are all of these nuances important? They are because they all go towards showing what Parliament intended. Um, what I would have described about the appeal rights, that's the most obvious uh, tailoring and some of the most impactful, but under the pre-removal risk assessment provisions, for example, um, we get an even more clear indication about what Parliament intended. So turning to the Refugee Convention.
3: Before going there, Ms. Olmsted, I have a question for you Yes. before you go to your next point. Yes. Um, one of the interveners um, is arguing for a correctness standard. It is the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers. They say because it is a certified question, a correctness standard should be applied. You don't go that far in your factum. In fact, you began your submissions this morning in saying that it is a reasonableness standard which should apply. But in your factum, you say that the existence of a certified question. Uh, is at least an, an indicia of a robust reasonableness review. What is your uh, understanding of a robust reasonableness review and correctness? Is there a difference between the two or not?
1: In our submissions, I mean, that, that's a, that is a difficult question and um, not one that I, I think the decision on this case ultimately needs to turn on. And. What I will acknowledge is, in a number of recent immigration cases, the Federal Court of Appeal has, in B10, in Tran, um, the Federal Court of Appeal felt that there was two reasonable interpretations left open of a provision, and this Court found, in in doing the analysis of those provisions, there wasn't. That Parliament intended one thing, and this Court decided those cases on a, a reasonableness standard. And this provision operates similarly. And so, in our submission, there are just a lot of indicators of what Parliament intended because of how these provisions are so impactful. And so, it just may mean that if there's not robust reasons provided about some of these incredibly important points about taking away the lives of permanent residents, separating them from children and, and, and their spouses. And um we're moving to places where they may first face persecution, which is a, a result of this decision, um, that there's just a lot of things that need to be analyzed, and so the reasons need to address that okay. but
4: isn't that the point that that just to get back to comments made by justices Brown and Jamal it, it's surely it's not the all the little things big things that the the administrative decision maker left out, it's the impact of the decision on the affecting, affected individual that's the starting point. Vavilov makes very clear that that's the linchpin in the reasons. That's the justification that the absence in the reasons of explaining to someone who is confronted with sometimes, Vavilov even speaks of vulnerability, the exercise of. of of power and the, they want an explanation of why they are inadmissible and that is absent from the IAD and that leads you secondly to looking at the consequences of It's surely it's not the other way around because the problem with doing it the other way around is you do slip into the IAD was wrong which is not what we're supposed to do. So I'm just trying to, to, is your argument methodologically not, let's start with the impact of the decision on the affected Mr. Mason, for example, and the hole in the reasons that fails to address that and then move from there?
1: And and that is exactly what our submission is. So um, in answering questions, I've I've been taken to to the important points in in this court's mind. But that was exactly my my first submission um, that I had prepared today, was to start with the impact on on people of the interpretation that's caused by the, the IED's decision which is completely missing from its decision. So the only recognition that the IED gives at all about the impact of its decision is at the end where it states, um, in considering that it's not contrary to Canadian values, um, because immigration sanctions, or immigration consequences are not criminal sanctions. And everyone agrees that in criminal law you get a right to a fair trial, but this isn't criminal law. And so then we, we draw this court's attention to the quote in Wong, where this court has recognized that immigration consequences can be more severe um, than, than, than the criminal punishment. And that's why the withdrawal of guilty pleas has been allowed for people who weren't informed of, of the immigration consequence. And so, so this, that was it. The IED just simply dismissed um, the relevance of, of the importance Of considering the consequence to Mr. Mason and and it never turned its mind to to the scope of people captured by its definition. Well
2: you know Vavilov talked about the harsh consequences to the individual and there were particularly I mean of course in any sort of instance where um, where someone was facing what Mr. Vavilov was facing uh, the consequences are severe but with Mr. Vavilov they were particularly severe. Right, in light of his in his youth, he didn't speak the language, he never been there, he didn't even know he was a Russian. Um, so, are we then to equate harsh consequences to the individual, Alif Avalov, as consequences to people more generally?
1: And so that, th- there are two elements to that, which is one, that this court says two things in Babelov. So one, that the reasons have to reflect the stakes, so, and it speaks specifically about the individual, but it also states that you have to consider the consequences um, and, and, and to recognize that those best reflect the legislature's intent. And so in my submission, it's also relevant to an analysis of statutory interpretation when you're considering more generally, if you're just deciding the legal interpretation and the facts aren't fully before the decision maker, there is an obligation on the decision maker to consider. Well, these are the consequences um, that people under the law—the law that I'm an expert decision maker on—people can be deported to persecution, people are denied any humanitarian appeal, and so Mr. Mason, he he, he does—he's got three Canadian-born children, he has been in Canada for more than 12 years, and so. He, he, in a, the, the effect of the decision is that he becomes separated from the children without any humanitarian review of rehabilitative factors, the seriousness of the offense, the best interest of his children, the hardship that he'll face. Um, and and, so that, and that is the same consequence in that interpretation to every permanent resident. Or not every, but every permanent resident is impacted to different degrees um, by an interpretation that's so broad And the question is, did Parliament intend to treat anyone convicted of a common criminal offence on on the same level as people convicted of, or sorry, um, where there's reasonable grounds to believe individuals are engaged in terrorism or crimes against humanity or subversion of governments? And in our submission, the answer is no, that there is a principled, the Act shows a, a principled dealing with of of these different contexts. There's a reason that, that Parliament has elevated and separated out things like terrorism and why Parliament has shown reliance on our criminal justice system for people accused of but it It seems to event. me that
5: the, the, the rationale is one of practicality, which we should never lose sight of. Um, the criminal courts are there. Their uh, operation is um, well-founded. And the, the, I think the view is that if you're convicted, that's, that's a very sound basis for saying that the accused carried out the acts of you know, which they were convicted. And if you're acquitted, uh, probably you didn't do it, or at least it wasn't demonstrated to the requisite offence uh, standard. When it comes to things like membership in uh, the mafia, or Al-Qaeda, or something of this nature, The ability to demonstrate that to the requisite standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt is probably impossible to to achieve. But you you can have a sound basis for forming that view from intelligence reports. And so in one instance, you said, well, the the standard we're gonna apply is one that incorporates a conviction But we're not going to incorporate a conviction here for whether you're a member of Al-Qaeda because we're just not going to be able to achieve it. But we do have to guard against those kinds of threats to Canadians. So I'm not saying it's an unprincipled basis, but it seems to me it's a basis which is grounded in practicality as well.
1: And and I have a number of points to make in response to that, which is that is exactly what Parliament said in Hansard when it enacted this provision. So it was in 1976, before the uh, Olympics in Montreal, and it specifically said that it had in mind the attacks that had occurred in Munich, and it, it, it needed to ensure it could turn away people who it had a reasonable basis for believing may commit those same types of acts here in Canada. And so my friend has said that the Hansards are new evidence before this court. And that that background information was actually given by the minister in their submissions to the Immigration Division. So it's not – the Hansards are new because this they, – they, they had a footnote where they, they didn't provide this document and, and the, that background, but that information was before um, the division in its submissions. And so a couple more points I wanted to make um, to your comment was that in Tran and Medavarsky, which are – two cases that that consider inadmissibility provisions. This court has said, when when talking and looking at the objectives of IRPA and recognizing the objectives include security and public safety, this court has said Section 36, our criminal inadmissibility provision, it does that. It protects public safety and security. And that was specifically stated by this court twice. Um, and, And to add to that, Parliament has said, we don't need a conviction if you're overseas. An act alone overseas is enough, and there's a principled reason for that as well, because persons may be fugitive from justice elsewhere, or they may come here and an offense may be discovered after. But once a person is already here for a common act of criminal violence, we, we have to be able to trust our justice system. And in my submission, that's the decision that Parliament made. It's only um, where there's something elevated, uh, like what, what you have just described, Justice Rowe. Um, this, this distinction, um, for, for, for um, practical reasons, becomes necessary. And so if, if I can turn, the court seems well familiar with our written argument, but if I can turn to highlight the, the international law point, because I think it's an important one, Article 33 of the Refugee Convention um, sets out the principle of non law. And so in B10, in in Vavilov recently in the the Society of Composers case, this court has recognized international law is important uh, as an element uh, in an exercise of statutory interpretation. And in this case, so Article 33 is expressly incorporated into Section 115 of the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, Um, and and there's And so, Article 33 sets out that there's two exceptions to the principle of non-refoulement, which is that you can only deport a person to persecution if they've either been convicted of a particularly serious offense or they pose a danger to the security of the host country. And so, without building in a national security element into the definition of this Section 34 provision, through the operation of the way an individual becomes ineligible for a refugee claim, they're left with an application, so a pre-removal risk assessment application before they're removed, they're denied any assessment of their risk of persecution in that application if they're found inadmissible under Section 34. So the interpretation to be taken from that is Parliament intended there to be a national security element at the front end so that we're not in direct violation of our non-refoulement obligations and in my submission this becomes clear when you look at the way the section 36 provisions are drafted so parliament in order to engage the non-refoulement principle in section 112 and 101 they've enacted even higher standards than what's built into section 36 to find that a person can be denied a refugee claim and deported to persecution so they found firstly it has to be a serious criminal offense somebody cannot be denied a refugee claim just because they receive a seven-month jail sentence for an assault simpliciter. It has to be an assault causing bodily harm or assault with a weapon. It has to be a 10-year max. So otherwise, they get a refugee claim, and that's under Section 101. After that, if you're denied a refugee claim because you've committed this serious offense, in order to be denied an assessment of your risk of persecution, you have to have had a sentence of two years or more imprisonment. So it's a much higher threshold to allow a person to be refueled to persecution. And the IED's interpretation by not requiring a national security nexus undoes Canada's compliance through Section 36 um, on on both of the exceptions.
4: What do you make of your colleagues on the other side, paragraphs 121 and following of their factum, um, describe your arguments as new arguments regarding the Refugee Convention um, noting that you did not make submissions or present evidence um, to the ID or to the IAD with respect to the Refugee Convention. I understand you, the point that you, this is use cogens, this is, this is uh, obligatory international law. So I'm interested in that. And, and then your answer to their position that, that these are your new arguments don't undermine the reasonableness of the IAD decision anyway. And so you don't really need to go, go there. In fact, if listening to your previous arguments, it does seem like this is kind of icing on the cake, right? So I'm just wondering what this court needs to do given those two circumstances.
1: So I'll, I'll start with the last part of the question, which is that it doesn't undermine our obligations. Um, so the respondent f- focuses on people who are already found to be refugees. So they say that if you're already found to be a refugee, you get a danger opinion. Um, so you do have to be found to be a, a danger to the security before you can be removed. And they ignore and gloss over refugee claimants. And so refugee claimants under international law, that status is declaratory, which means if, if you are you're a refugee because of your circumstances under an international law, not because Canada finds you to be a refugee. So they, they gloss over in our submission this consequence that, that we are in um, breach of international law and, and the UNHCR will echo that. I don't, I
7: don't
5: want to get technical, but you know I, this keeps coming back again and again in pleadings to this court. We're in breach of international law. Where's the world government? Where's the legislature for the, for the World Federation that imposed it on us? It does not exist. To the ex- other than uh, certain things like use Kogans, which my colleague referred to, and I question whether this is covered by that, because that's customary international law. This is conventional international law, and it is not something which somebody has imposed upon us. It is something which we have voluntarily undertaken and which we could just as easily end our, our ratification and would cease to be any obligation. So there's not this sort of cloud of international law which, which descends on Canada. This is an obligation which we voluntarily undertaken toward the international community, and we are expected, the courts expect the uh, executive and the legislature to give proper effect to this. Uh, but it, but it's, it's entirely possible to reverse it, to say we withdraw our ratification, you know, we, we give notice. All these conventions have provisions in them which say you can withdraw your ratification perhaps on 12 months' notice. So, it, it, I guess I'm just saying that uh, there's, a, there's this fuzziness about international legal obligations that I find problematic because there is no world legislature.
1: No, and I take your point, Justice Rowe, and I submit in this context there's that that, um, that doesn't exist because it's section 33 sub 3 sub F of the ERPA that says, ERPA is to be construed and applied in a manner that complies with international human rights instruments to which Canada is a signatory. The IRPA, the, the Parliament is directly seeking to enact provisions of the Refugee Convention, and that's why Article 33 is written word for word, or not, it it, it's mirrors in, in Section 115 of the Act.
8: Parliament. Has, I would like to ask you a question about 3.3 uh, and, and, and the... Uh, um, ERPA has uh, this uh, express interpretive provision and it articulates things. That's a very distinctive legislative approach perhaps. And so um, in the IAD decision, when it is not addressed, when, the, when Parliament has said a reasonable interpretation would take into account Canada's international obligations, um, surely that has to have an implication per Vavlov about what is a reasonable interpretation of those sections. So without any addressing of the IAD, of the international law dimension, when there is one, um, and I guess I would ask, is this a new issue? Is it an issue that anyone in the decision-maker's position at, at at the appeal level ought properly? in a reasonable interpretation of this to have considered, whether raised by Council or not.
1: And so in our submission, our our first submission on that is exactly yes. It's baked into the Act. And so in the same way the IED is obligated to consider Section 36 as part of the context, Um, it has to consider international law. And that's what this court said and did in B10. It found international law to be a fundamental interpretive element to the Section 37 human smuggling and admissibility provision. But a second element of this is that international law, it was raised before the IED. And so this is at tab four of our condensed book. Mr. Mason provided his submissions, and he he appended the the decision of Member King to, to to his submissions. And so if we turn to page 45, Member King copies and pastes, and this is a secondary point, because we submit regardless of this, the IAD was obligated to consider international law. But the decision before the member, the one decision that was put before him, is Member King copying and pasting Article 33 in full, and using that to inform her interpretation that a national security nexus was required. So in our submission, he, he didn't, Consider this element at all. Um, and, and so it wasn't specifically drawn out in Mr. Mason's submissions that he's deportable to persecution. But that's supposed to be part of the IED's expertise in, in, in applying IRPA.
6: Perhaps um, uh, as well um, to the question that Justice Kazira asked whether this is just icing on the cake. It, it is actually one of the consequences as well of the decision. So it could be under that heading as part of consequences. But perhaps. It is one of the consequences, and given that it's a mandatory statutory obligation, it, it bears on the remedy, because rather than remanding um, it, it is a strong the strongest, clearest indicium, perhaps, that there is only one reasonable interpretation. So it may bear on the issue of remedy, rather, because the other arguments are uh, may, may not be knockout punches to use uh, Justice Grammont's. This one seems to me, or arguably. Um, does uh, indicate one particular remedy most clearly
1: and and yes yeah, so in our submission it's all of, it's these elements taken together that show this was Parliament's intent and that that is a very strong indicator of Parliament's intent in our submission um, and it's wrapped up into the the incoherence caused and the tailoring and and the consequences that this is all part of um, the formula that shows what Parliament intended. Did
2: Mr. Mason raise international law before the federal court? Yes. Why didn't Justice Grimaud address it?
1: Um, actually, I don't have, sorry, I don't have a clear recollection of our submissions. Um,
2: well, you're saying it doesn't matter. He should have done it anyways.
1: Yes, and, and sorry, I my recollection is that we, we raised it, but I, I'm actually not 100% certain on that. Um, I was a co counsel, and so I, I think this was the, the more important element. The, 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 the incoherence was certainly the front and center argument made by um, counsel. At you, did you Lutheran. raise Member
6: King's decision before the federal court?
1: Um, my understanding is yes. I, again, I don't have a clear Your argument
6: is that it was raised indirectly through the pending of the decision, it wasn't raised perhaps. Uh, front and center it, reading the submission it doesn 't read no. refer to the submission it 's not there, but you 're saying it 's raised through through the re- incorporated by reference through the decision
1: exactly and just like ha- how prior decisions and jurisprudence are are part of the, um, the, interpret- the 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 thing the factors that a tribunal is supposed to address and in this case it becomes important too because in looking at whether or not a later decision maker could depart like member co um, member co had Member King's decision before her and she says well there's no new arguments so before me to to adopt a different decision than what the IED adopted and so this puts a first instance tribunal in an incredibly difficult position of saying well if Member King addressed it um, but the Immigration Appeal Division didn't can I depart? Is this a new issue? So here there is a practical a problem um, with the fact that it, w- it wasn't addressed in the
9: IED's decision shouldn't we, shouldn't
2: we be encouraging people to raise as you know all the arguments that then can be raised before the administrative decision maker I mean so I mean uh, otherwise you know what's what's stopping you from holding the international law argument in your back pocket and raising it later on judicial review if you weren't successful
1: and absolutely and and
2: I'm sorry I don't accept the idea that just by throwing a case in front of somebody that that you're submitting everything that's in the case you have to draw it's typically customary to draw the decision makers attention to the particular portions in the case that you're relying on
1: and I guess I I would just have a practical answer about access to justice considerations before tribunals which are that you know a lot of of, me
2: until you lost but a lot of work
1: (laughs) is done on legal aid hours where, where you're given in, in british columbia ten hours well if it's, if it's that to,
2: important an argument yes
1: I, but
4: but let, let me let me get back to Justice Jamal's point that, that the the usefulness of this argument is to help you after you've dis- established that the decision is unreasonable because of the repercussions that weren't attended to, then you want to go a step further and say there is actually only one reasonable interpretation. And the question I think my colleague was asking you is, how do you get there? Do you need the international law argument to get there? It's perhaps one way to get there. Can you get there on a Ujustum generis argument on section 34? You know, you read all the other paragraphs and it leads you to one single place for 34.1e. To what extent is it necessary to your Argument. I realize it, it. It certainly helps you, and it, it, it chuffs you up to speak of, of, of a violation of, of international law and perforce, if it's one that's imposed upon Canada, notwithstanding its will. But that's. I think the key question is whether it leads us to a single reasonable answer, which has a huge impact on what this court will do with this appeal. Even if we were to agree with you that the, the interpretation was unreasonable.
1: In our submission, the the consequences and the incoherence caused to the structure of the Act, given the way Section 36 is so clearly drafted and cuts out things like conditional discharges where the criminal courts found it was in the public interest to grant that, to elevate those to the the same levels of of consequence as someone engaged in terrorism, that alone shows us that Parliament required more, that a national security element was required. That is what it meant when it said someone is inadmissible on security grounds, and so that gets you there. Um, but we submit that then it, 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 the international law arg- argument on its own, that also gets you there. And the history also shows you that. So
3: if
9: I understand your uh, position then, it would be relevant at two different places, One in the um, review of whether the decision itself was reasonable. And I, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the IAD said that it made its decision with the benefit of and relying on Member King's decision, which raised these issues. Um, So that is the one part, but it's also then relevant if you conclude it's not reasonable, it could be relevant to the issue of remedy and whether it needs to go back or not.
1: Yes, and in our submission, that, that's right, and our submission is that the remedy is that this should be interpreted to include a national security element, and but, the the But IED. making
9: the argument at both stages. Yes. Understanding that you're saying any one of your various arguments would be sufficient on their own, but you're putting them all forward, um, and perhaps it also would include looking at it cumulatively. Yes. Okay. Yes, one one last
0: question from uh, Justice Rowan. Your time is up okay yes. thank you chief justice
5: on a methodological question and i'll try to be brief and clear if a reviewing court is persuaded that the interpretation given by the statutory decision maker is unreasonable so we've already crossed that bridge then is it open to the reviewing court to, in a sense, do a fresh interpretation. In other words, you don't use disguised, This is a little bit of a subtle point, perhaps. You don't do your own interpretation and then conclude that what the decision-maker did was unreasonable. But if using a proper uh, reasons-first analysis as set out in Vavilov, the Court is persuaded that th- this is just not a reasonable interpretation. then is it open to the court to say we can turn our minds afresh to the issue and 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 interpret it in a, in a correct manner and, and, and craft a remedy on that basis yeah?
1: and to answer that question in our submission. Um, it is open with this one element. So here, the, the indicators are Parliament intended the provision to have a national security element. Just like in Tran, the court found a term of imprisonment um, does not capture a conditional sentence order under Section 36. And in B10, the court found that the human smuggling provision requires a material benefit element. So the, courts there, the court there didn't go on to, to interpret every single element of the provision, but they found where there's a necessary element Um, of the provision that as a remedy it it interpreted to require that element and then it left it open to the tribunal to uh, interpret other elements of the provision and apply uh, the provision to the facts.
10: Yes, um, uh, Robert Kincaid. I represent Mr. DeLu, the other appellant. Um, I only essentially have two points uh, that I wanted to make. The first point is in my introduction and in the oral argument, just that uh, the decision-maker here um, was not faced with a multiple range of choices that sometimes uh, decision-makers are uh, faced with. There was only essentially two choices at play here. Either national security is a necessary element of section 31, 341e, or it's not. Uh, the I.D. decided it was not, the federal court said it is. The federal court of appeal uh, stated that the tribunals, the decision makers, bring no expertise to this purely legal issue which is an analysis of text, context, and purpose. Uh, What the decision maker is supposed to bring to the table um, is to, and the respondent agrees, look at the significant consequences as in section C of my submissions on the oral argument. Uh, If there's significant consequences for those caught by the inadmissibility provision, there's a principle of responsive justification. There's an obligation on the tribunal the decision maker to address why its decision best reflects legislature's intention. Uh, there may be in limited circumstance only one reasonable interpretation. Our argument is basically the IED on determining that uh, national security was not a necessary element, was not responsibly addressing the arguments that uh, Mr. Mason's counsel had put before it. Uh, and in a sense, and that, uh, I, I take the knockout punches poetic uh, commentary. Uh, I think Justice Grimond, when he was looking at the structure of the act, you see my problem he, with this poetic stuff,
5: touchstones, knockout punches. It's a black box. You say, "Oh, this is a touchstone. This is this is this is a knockout punch," and it obscures and 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 serves as a substitute for reasoning. And that's why I I shift uncomfortably in my chair by analysis, by metaphor.
10: I accept that. We're not arguing here that the knockout punch is the test or the touchstone. Uh, As I say, um, we're simply arguing that the structure of the act that Justice Graham pointed to renders the decision unreasonable when the tribunal responsibly does not address it. It's much like a tribunal getting a fact wrong and on judicial review, the decision's unreasonable because they overlooked the material fact or they misstated a the material fact. It's the same when they overlook a legal argument that's before them. That's essentially that part of my submission. The second point I wanted to make was the, if, um, if you're looking at section 341e and you, it's untethered from an element of national security, There's a lot of host of problems here. The the foundational section of the inadmissibility provisions is section 33, which is reasonable grounds to believe that uh, facts constitute uh, inadmissibility. Uh, They may have occurred, are occurring, or may occur. So we look into the past. There is no time limit in the past that the uh, Authorities can uh, go to. Uh, if the IED's interpretation is considered reasonable, they can go back for every domestic violent assault person, permanent resident who was acquitted. They can go back to everyone who got conditional or absolute discharges or peace bonds. They can go back for everyone who wasn't even charged, much like my client, Mr. Delu and look at the police reports, because that is, uh, it's beyond, it's just elevated to the point, the standard above mere suspicion. Reasonable grounds, police reports are acceptable uh, to the immigration divisions as um, reliable uh, evidence of facts, at least for the purposes of reasonable grounds to believe. The what I, I practice in youth court, uh, a fair bit, what I find uh, what the tribunal doesn't look at is if you look at Section 36 in the structure, it is clearly indicated that young offenders, no matter if it's ordinary criminality or serious criminality, they are not inadmissible under Section 36 for any um, criminal conduct. However, immigration can now, if this interpretation of the IAD is reasonable, immigration can now go back 10, 15, 20, 30 years. I don't know, there is no limit. They can go back and say, okay, let's look at the young offenders who got into common assaults with uh, other school kids, or let's look at the uh, young offenders because we're not hamstrung by the prohibition in section 36 we can go after them for ordinary criminality under 34. The example I was thinking of was you have two permanent residents. Uh, resident, permanent resident A is, con, is um, convicted of what the federal court of appeal referred to in I believe their section 34, paragraph 34, of their reasons, they called that, and this is B item seven of my oral submissions, uh, serious criminal offenses they referred to as the harshest criminality that had a host of nonviolent offenses, and they listed them. A number of their offenses, if they were proceeded with indictably, have a one-year minimum sentence, if minimums are going to be upheld in those sections. Some are proceeded summarily, they have 90-day minimum sentences. But that permanent resident, leaving the side of the young person they're not because they're not inadmissible under 36 but under 36 an adult permanent resident who permanent resident a um he has one of these federal court of appeal convictions one of the harshest criminalities he's still going to have appeal rights he's going to have relief provisions he's not going to be returnable to a foreign country without a consideration of his 96 and 97 um Risk, unless he got more than two years jail sentence in which case it would just be the section 97 risks then you have a common assault person and uh, ordinary criminality in 36 got a conditional discharge peace bond acquitted they're going to be shuffled off to section 34 if any sort of violence at all is uh, involved and, and that includes, according to my immigration division, uh, psychological harm as a safety issue for a Canadian. It's not just a physical threat to life or any threat to life because in KH, the member relied only on the um, threat to safety to uh, Ms. KH and that included the psychological harm to her. Now, the, that person, ordinary criminality, or let's the verbal threat that Mr. DeLue made, which is uh, indictable, if it's proceeded indictably, is up to five years, but fell, falls well short of serious criminality. That person is, is um, there will not be any appeal rights. There will not be any relief provisions. Uh, and. This court in Tran, in paragraph 32, had specifically indicated that the uh, public safety as an objective of ERPA under 3.1H is not enhanced by deporting less culpable offenders while allowing more culpable offenders to remain in Canada. The federal court of appeal themselves have set up under paragraph 64. What I would submit would be um, more culpable offenders, child pornography, non-violence, in any event, more culpable individuals than someone who has an allegation of reasonable grounds believe that they committed a common assault or they made a verbal threat. Uh, So I think TRAN is some guidance that, um, and should those consequences to people outside of our clients have to be considered as when determining was this a reasonable interpretation by the IAD that national security is not required. Because if if we're untethered from national security and we can go back in time to go after anyone who has committed an act of violence, then there is a warehouse full of people who were acquitted, conditional discharges, or uh, just ordinary criminal offences who could be dragged now before the Immigration Division. And on a practicality issue, one wonders why it was this provision was never used before, but what it could be used for now. All right. Thank Those are my points.
0: Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. cool! Yeah. Please be seated. <clears throat> Michael Morris
11: thank you chief justice um good afternoon uh, good morning it's not even afternoon yet um my colleague bj ray and i will be presenting the arguments on behalf of the respondent minister of citizen immigration and i'll be doing the overview and then i will be addressing the standard of review issue and then my colleague bj will address whether the iad statutory interpretation of section 341e is in fact Reasonable, and the facts will not be canvassed separately. They'll be addressed in the context of the relevant legal argument. They are in our factum at paragraphs five to thirty-two. <coughs> the appellants and interveners' arguments focus on the premise that there can only be one single reasonable interpretation of section 3401e in light of the impact of applying this provision to an individual and the limited range of options open to the ID in this case. Now, the Minister acknowledges the statutory interpretation issues here are complex, that there was more than one reasonable interpretation open to the IAD, and that the decisions in issue have impact upon the individuals impacted. But as found by the Federal Court of Appeal applying Vavilov, none of that justifies individually or collectively a finding that only one reasonable interpretation existed and that the tribunal erred in coming up with another one. Accepting the approach adopted by the appellants and interveners would not amount to a clarification of the Vavilov framework. It would require it to be overturned. Four years after, uh, sorry, four years prior to the Vavilov decision, Justice Abella described the standard review as being this court's prodigal child in the Sodrak case, pointing to confusion in the jurisprudence unduly burdened by too many exceptions to the then applicable Dunsmuir contextual framework. The purpose of Vavilov was to restore the simplicity and predictability to the standard review and as in large measure succeeded in doing so. And there is no basis to revisit it again three years later. Notwithstanding my friend's submission that their uh, submissions are in keeping with the Vavilov decision, they're not. And certainly many um, of the interveners' arguments uh, are not and in fact call for an explicit overturning of that.
2: Well, you may be right about that, but, but, but I'm wondering if I can point something to you point you to something and maybe you can help me on. Um, Vavilov says reasons first, right? Yes. Vavilov also says that a reasonable decision accounts for constraints, legal constraints, including legal constraints within a statute. And Vavilov also says sometimes there will be more than one reasonable answer. What kind of guidance can we give, if any, to tribunals who, uh, or rather to reviewing courts (coughs) in how to conduct a reasons first review, while at the same time accounting for statutory constraints and the possibility of one reasonable answer, which themselves suggest an independent statutory assessment of some kind.
11: Again, the the whole, uh, Justice Brown, the whole thrust of Vavilov is you start with the reasons. Um, it doesn't mean, of course, that the, the the court has to then eliminate its own capacity to make an assessment of the reasonableness of that assessment. But you begin with and you stay within the reasons. You but see but you also
2: have to account. You, you also have to assess those reasons in light of the statutory constraints. So you need to know about the statutory constraints before you go at the reasons. It seems to me.
11: Well, that that's the question. Um,
2: and that's, like, the, and that's look, the rub, and look, that's what I'm looking for guidance
11: on. It, there is a rub. So there is absolutely a rub. There is text, context, and purpose. That's the nature of statutory interpretation, no matter who does it. What Vavilov says is that in the context of judicial review, you begin with the reasons. What did they say about text? What did they say about context? What did they say about purpose? Then you look at, well, what submissions were put to them in that respect that were obvious or that, they're reading a statute unreasonably, so the court at that point needs to balance what they said. Well, that can't be what the statute says because it says X. And oh, so you do
2: look the at dis- the statute?
11: Necessarily. You so when do, you, when do you do but, that? Well, it's a holistic process. Oh, it's
2: holistic. Okay, <laughs> it's
11: holistic that's really clear. Protest, yeah. <laughs> but the, the, whole, the whole issue is you begin with, you stay within the reasons. You don't go... Looking it, at a statute or something uh, like that it's a holistic process i don't know there there, there's not a complete answer but the 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 court doesn't divorce itself from the textual scheme it doesn't a re a robust reasonless review allows you to say to look at what so it's robust and
2: holistic i've got it
11: what what do i'm not i'm not trying to use buzzwords (laughs) i'm not trying to use buzzwords i'm trying to actually talk about what is done in 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 the practical world uh in this sense but if Babelov had any messages at all, it's said don't go out and do yardsticks and do your own interpretation right. and then measure the decision against it. And right. that is exactly what, with all due respect, uh, Justice Germo did at the federal court and Justice uh, Stratus uh, with the federal court of appeal rightly pointed that out. And I think that's, that's the key to judicial review here. And I think that's where it goes wrong. If you accept, as I said, the approach and And what it 's also really, really important but Vavilov, can i
8: I want to stop you here for a second, and yes. it, you 've mentioned a couple of times that you start with the reasons, no one will quarrel with a reasons' first approach being the yes. uh, proper uh, approach set down in Vavilov, but what if something isn 't in the reasons that ought to have been in the reasons? <laughs> Um, like a consideration, perhaps, of the consequences or the repercussions. Um, What if part of the statutory interpretation uh, didn't make it in, that there was a focus, as we've heard, on a rule of consistency rather than specific and general and all of those sorts of things? So surely we can go beyond the reasons themselves to assess in a reasons-first basis that there has been an unreasonable um, conclusion or decision taken?
11: Absolutely, Justice uh, Smart. That is exactly correct. That's what a fundamental gap is. If a reasoning, if there's an absence of explanation, an absence of grappling with a fundamental issue, an obvious, clear, salient within the, within the words of Avalos, a salient issue that was put to the tribunal that they failed to grapple with, you have a fundamental gap. So in that sense, the reason-based analysis doesn't require the court to stay within the four squares of just the language used by the decision maker. You measure what the decision maker did, the decision that was made uh, through the reasons in reference to the statute. Was it a reasonable interpretation with reference to the submissions put to the tribunal? Was it, uh, did they grapple uh, in a salient, important way with what was put to them. So in that sense, of course, reasoning isn't staying within just the four squares of the language to, uh, and ignoring either the, the text to address Justice Brown's question uh, or the submissions put to it. That's how you measure whether or not it's a reasonable well, decision and whether or not there's let, a fundamental Let's start gap. there
6: then. So you, we've been told about Member King's decision. Member King's decision is referred to at paragraph 11 of the IAD submission. That's not yes. referred to anywhere. Paragraphs 12 and 13, they're not addressed in the, in the IED decision. Paragraphs 16 to 18 of their submission aren't addressed in the IEDs. So I agree that reasons don't need to address every single point. But when you look at the, you know, Vavilov talks about the culture of justification. Yes. Um, and it isn't the number of points, but it is a number of contextual clues that have been argued that simply aren't addressed, including Member King's decision specifically. So what, what do we say about that, um, Well, um, my colleague is going to get into the reasonableness of the decision
11: itself, but in in, in short, um, there was no obligation on the part of the IAD within the realm of staying reasonable to deal with each and every point addressed um, by Justice King in in his decision. There was no, and, and then it becomes a judgment point. To what extent were there salient arguments put to it? He he, uh, the iad decision references justice king's decision he i'm uh, sorry member king's decision offers a different interpretation and offers an explanation and a reasonable explanation of what that different interpretation is i don't i submit that that does not constitute a fundamental gap that the, the again it, it, it's not an obligation on the part of the decision maker to go through detail and through each and every sub uh or each and every sub-detail of something that was put to them like for example an appended decision Um, I think that goes beyond what the requirements of justification are and to to go back to my point about Vavilov it struck that fundamental balance uh, of mandating deference to decisions and embracing the possibility of tribunals selecting more than a reasonable interpretation yet by opposing robust reasonableness, the obligation was on the decision-makers to demonstrate greater transparency and justification of their decision through reasons. We say um, that the IAD did that. That's fundamentally what we say they did, and I said my colleagues going to get into that more than I, because I wanted to focus more on I have a question you. for you. Yes.
3: You are uh, referring all the time to uh, submissions uh, put by the parties to, to the decision-maker. In your view... Is it essential for a decision maker to consider, for instance, legislative intent in doing the statutory interpretation? Is it essential, uh, does it depend on the submissions of the parties for a decision maker to consider legislative intent? And maybe if I can just
9: add to that, Um, consider legislative constraints, such as Section 33.
11: Yes, constraints and text are absolutely critical to a decision makers process
3: okay and is it essential for is it necessary for the parties to make submissions to that effect or is it not the duty of the decision maker to consider the legislative intent and constraints
11: it's always required when the decision maker reviews a decision to to measure the the decision against for example what the text is if there's something right. that is painfully obvious or should have been painfully obvious regardless of whether a party brought attention to it or not then that could in circumstances again we're in hypotheticals and speculation here that could in certain circumstances be reasonable but if your question is is it incumbent on a decision maker to go and do their own research and start referring to materials like for example Hansard or other materials that were not put to them no that goes beyond the scope of what the obligation is on a decision-maker to go uh, on a, a court in judicial review to go beyond that so i think justice stratus correctly pointed out and i'm going to spend more time on this later that the international uh, the materials uh, supporting international obligations which we say are not uh, germane here at all because these were not refugees and none of those arguments were put to uh the tribunal that justice stratus rightly said no those arguments, those materials, belong before the original decision maker that that under Vavilov, through legislative intent, were the ones that were intended to address it. They're the ones that have the specialization in that area to make those determinations. That's in part why it's not appropriate for courts to go on its own mission to start digging up, for example, or other material. So it's a it's a balancing process. But there mm-hmm. isn't but one the
6: interpretation other- for re- refugee claimants and another for non-refugee claimants. The, these aren't refugee claimants, granted. No. But this is the uh, immigration and, and, and refugee board, and then the IAD, and that's what that's its bread and butter. And it has a yes. statutory directive to consider international yes. conventions. So this isn't some uh, you know obscure uh, convention or law that they are being asked to uh, advert to um it is it is really something that they deal with each and every day so you talked about something being blindingly obvious i would have thought uh international conventions to which is a party is something that it is blindingly obvious uh particularly when you know there's one one decision put in the submission and it's not referred to it's not a consistent body of jurisprudence granted but surely um you know you have to say something to the claimants well if you'd been before member king you probably wouldn't have been deported but with me you're going to be deported i mean that's the that's the message isn't it um
11: there are a couple of elements to that question um but let me deal with the first one uh in respect of the international obligations it is not my point that international obligations were not are not or cannot be relevant to the interpretation of the statute especially in the context of of the immigration refugee protection act of course it can be relevant of course it's important that is not that is not our point our point is was it required in this case and, I, and my colleagues can into this in more detail than i <coughs> for this tribunal determining a provision dealing with inadmissibility to interpret canada's international obligations on refoulement vis-a-vis refugee which these were not for which no submissions were made before it with respect to those obligations and how they might apply to refugees. These are not refugees. In that context, when in the whole o- Canada's international obligations on refoulement have to do with when Canada is in the process of removing, they're dealt with under Section 115. At that point, Canada's international obligations get engaged. They're not engaged here. This is an admissibility provision exercised against persons otherwise not qualified to engage. Uh, principles governing our our commitment to to the Refugee Convention because they're not refugees. So when that uh, situation emerges, that we're dealing with the question of removing someone who would be protected by that, and then it becomes an issue about the balancing process, which, by the way, is built into this, as to whether or not that could be a reasonable decision or not. That's not what we have here in any way, shape, or form. So I want to be clear. I am not submitting that international obligations are irrelevant or somehow not, or secondary, or that they can't be used. That is not my point. You have to look at the context in which they're raised. Who are the parties? What arguments do they make? Are these arguments about Canada's international obligations, about refoulement? Well, I think, what I think uh,
5: sir, one, one of the concerns, and I'm not a mind reader, but I th- think that my uh, fellow Judge Jamal uh, is concerned about a situation, I am at least, where a, a tribunal proceeds, let us say they proceed in good faith, and with, you know, diligence, and respond to the submissions made to them, question mark whether that was so here, but I'm, I'm, I'm using an abstract example. And so, based on the points made to the a statutory decision-maker their reasons are responsive but then upon examination it becomes clear that there were other considerations which were integral to the statutory scheme which the the the, the tribunal the statutory decision maker simply did not advert to now our is a reviewing court to say, too bad. Those, those weren't put to the statutory decision maker. Uh, they responded to what was put to them, and um, therefore the decision was reasonable. Or is it better to say that the analysis, while it was responsive to the submissions, was so incomplete that it it, it amounts to being unreasonable, which would ordinarily lead to it being sent back, and say, do it again, and this time take into account all the things you should take into account. Uh, it, It would depend.
11: If, for example, the obviousness of a different interpretation or how it might apply in a different context only emerges in a different context like say for example these were um refugees or refugee claimants and we're dealing with the question of their removal in that context for example then it would be for another tribunal to determine whether uh, a different spin on on something is reasonable or not because it's only the court making a determination about the reasonableness of an interpretation uh it, it remains open to another tribunal in another circumstance to make a different Interpretation in a, in a different in a different circumstance, um, but there are the whole idea behind judicial review. Uh, Justice Rowe is for a tribunal to uh, restrict itself to consider the decision to the arguments put before it, the circumstances in which it's.
9: But uh, I'm sorry. Is that
11: that that are being read and reading the the statute in that context? If the tribunal does its job, it's reasonable. We can't start speculating about circumstances or arguments that might have been made before them that they're then responsible for having addressed. Because then we're no longer into a reasonable deference uh, framework at all. We're into something completely different. We're into uh, reviewing courts having to anticipate uh, and render correct decisions governing all circumstances that, that may arise before a tribunal. And that is not what the exercise, as explained in Vabov, is that's certainly not a differential exercise. It's something different.
9: Okay, let's put aside for the moment that Member King's decision specifically discussed the issue of non-refoulement. So let's put aside this case for a moment. But are you suggesting um, that the failure to put an important argument before a tribunal will then immunize that tribunal's decision from any inquiry about the reasonableness of its decision on that ground? Because it's obvious that if somebody puts an important consideration before the tribunal that has uh, important consequences, then the failure to address that can clearly be an indicia, if you will, of, of unreasonableness. But the reverse is not necessarily true. There may be important submissions that are not made before a tribunal by the usually lay membership who are uh, lay applicants, parties who are not always represented, and to suggest somehow that the burden on parties before tribunals is so much, so much greater than it is on the parties in a judicial process and that if they don't raise an argument, then that cannot be considered in determining whether the decision is reasonable. There's just something fundamentally wrong with that submission. So I, I wanted to put it to you, give you a chance to answer answer that. It-
11: If you look to Vavilov itself, in fact, it gives an example at at paragraph 112 where there may be circumstances uh, in which it's quite simply unreasonable for an administrative decision maker to fail to apply or or interpret a statutory provision in accordance with the binding precedent, for example, where an immigration tribunal is required to determine whether an applicant's act would constitute a criminal offence under criminal law. law. It would clearly not be reasonable for the tribunal to adopt an interpretation that is inconsistent with Canadian criminal law. So there are... Examples when something on its face is obvious, um, but but beyond that narrow circumstance, um, tribunals are necessarily restricted to considering the arguments they're put before them, and it should not be open to courts to determine their. So, so, what's the difference between
2: that? What's the difference between that and a knockout punch? Uh,
11: well, a knock, a knockout punch is the question of of what's wrong with a knockout punch is that that's an external uh uh, analysis it's it's an it says come up with another better interpretation that trumps it's not it's the focus itself that's problematic in the knockout punch it's the focus itself and we're talking about when i'm making this concession and it's a concession it's with respect to the narrow governing circumstances when that could possibly apply because otherwise tribunals are restricted to making determinations based on the arguments they are made and that, that's by the way that's true about courts as well <laughs> like courts make determinations based on arguments that are made before it it's it's a natural failing of our justice system that that's how it operates and and, and if and when new arguments are made in different contexts and it's up to courts to determine whether or not there are grounds to come to different determinations in different circumstances that to me it seems to me to be the nature of the justice so, system it's okay not i just want to be clear here. of the administrative law system
9: i just want to be clear You're saying that the tribunal would have no obligation to consider Section 33 of its own act if it was not raised specifically by the parties.
11: Well, it would depend whether Section 33 was determinative. We're saying it's it's not in this case in any way, uh, shape, or form. Because what we're saying is that these, again, these particular, and my colleague will spend more time on this than me, the um, the uh, the actual decision here didn't engage the principles that are being argued about after the fact uh, in arguments that were only put to the federal court of appeal about international obligations. These these particular uh, applicants are not refugees, and their per- Canada's international obligations vis-a-vis refoulement are engaged not at the level of determining admissibility but the term of, of, of at the time of removal so what, what's being asked for here is a, a reverse engineering exercise whereby admissibility determinations within a certain way of looking at the act which may or may not be reasonable has to be true because otherwise there's x and y and z consequences to it we by the way we say there aren't uh, the consequences in in the manner being argued about here and I that these are serious provisions um there seems to be a presumption that in order for it to be serious it either has to be a have to have a nexus to national security or it has to be serious criminality under section 36. We say these are serious um, conduct uh, and acts engaged in that are captured by section 34. So we're not conceding their lack of seriousness or that they should sou- inherently be treated differently. But again, the issue of, of Canada's international obligations, if that was germane um, in a particular case and you see in a tribunal decisions that they fail to deal with st- something fundamental that they had to deal with that was obvious on its face, um, then you'd have a different circumstance. You'd have to determine whether or not the statute would bear the interpretation brought that the the tribunal made, and then there'd be a question about whether it's reasonable or not. That's the whole point of robust reasonableness. It doesn't let tribunals off the hook uh, at all. Uh, It's a robust form of review, um, and, and, and that you're measuring what it is that the actual tribunal determined
2: can i ask you how often has section 341e been applied by the id or the iad is this is this is this a heavily no. used provision within the scheme of of the statute
11: the short answer is no it's not been um justice brown i don't know that that determines the reasonableness of the of the provision but no it's been relatively uh rarely used there's almost no jurisprudence on it um, and until this court we're going to have a determination on the reasonableness of a decision from this Court. But, no, the short answer is it has not been used. Do you think beyond often.
2: beyond the question of, of national security nexus, do you think the IAD gave a broad or a narrow interpretation of the text of 341e?
11: Well, they certainly set out a, a threshold uh, for sure. Uh, when well, show they, show me where then, they did that. Well, it's in paragraph 36. Um, let me just get it up where... They held that the conduct captured by the provision is narrowly defined and anchored in terms of the danger posed to Canadians. Uh, Justice Stratus understood that to, uh, to be the meaning of a threat to safety. The provision is something approaching the level of a threat to life, not just minor harm. My friends take issue with that, saying that he went beyond I, I the mean, language. I'm
2: not even sure what that means. I, I can't tell if that's narrow or broad. Justice Grimaud seemed to think that they gave it a very broad understanding just a stratus a little narrower i agree but but um, honestly i just see them parroting the language of the statute and so and um, so th- so that that that's important right because um, i mean you say for example in your factum that 34 when he is aimed at violent conduct and does not capture minor harms well maybe maybe um, but but well but I don't really it's not clear to me exactly how the IAD understood putting aside the national security issue and I realize this only this only matters if in fact there is no national security nexus to 34 1e if not then that's a, a showstopper but 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 uh, if it does then that's a showstopper but but um, I I mean did the federal court simply misunderstand the IAD's interpretation no uh, uh, with respect in, in
11: in our interpretation he was merely uh using different words to flesh out what the iad did and i think there's an important point this goes back to i think your opening question to my friends uh, justice brown is that you have to appreciate the iad was asked a fairly narrow question as to whether or not individualized violent acts would or might endanger the lives or safety of canadians would that be caught by 341 e or does it only have a nexus to national security? He was answering that narrow question. The determination of That's, not, that's, not, how they, that's not
2: how they defined the legal issue in paragraph 4 of their decision. They didn't narrow the, it to nexus. They did in paragraph 5. But, 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 but the problem is, as I told your friend, the idea was this was going to go back to the ID, and all the ID had to do was find facts and apply them to a standard. But what standard? I mean, unless the standard is it's all open season, so long as there's uh, that that there's no necessary national security nexus, there's no standard. um, I'm, I'm not sure that's completely accurate in terms of the role of the ID. The
11: ID does indeed um, interpret law, subject to the dictate of what the ID. Well, your friend, your friend, your friend. My
2: understanding, and your friend confirmed this, is that all that was going to happen here was that the IAD takes whatever standard that's been handed down from the IAD, find facts, and apply them to the standard. In this case, am I wrong? I'm not sure. Uh, I think the best example
11: of what should have transpired in relation to the IAD versus the ID, if you look at the Lau decision,
2: you'll no, see that. No, no, that's that not what I'm, the, asking. I'm asking. I'm asking what was agreed here. My understanding was, it was, just, it, was just going to be, it was just going to be a fact-finding exercise and then apply it to the standard just decided by the IAD. Am I wrong? I, I, I don't see it as that narrow.
11: Um, and, and I think, as I said, the DeLau decision is relevant because the DeLau decision was taking the IAD determination on the legal point that was being determined and applying it as it set out to the facts of Well, they Well, they just presumed it was
2: open season right they they if there was no national security nexus then it's there then it applies
11: I I'm not sure that's right if you if you look at that decision there's a very careful analysis and balancing about what are the offenses of mr. law which were quite serious um, and 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 whether or not they met the threshold per se and and the threshold as I said is uh, iterated as I said in paragraph 36 of the IID decision, fleshed uh, given somewhat different words in respect effective stratus. Yes, there's a, there is a threshold there. Is it fleshed out in tremendous detail? No, but we're we It's our submission that show me the no threshold on the part show me th- of the IID fleshed out in tremendous detail. Show flesh, me the uh, threshold.
2: threshold. Sorry. Show me the threshold.
11: I can only point to you what the IED says and what the Federal Court of Appeal said to elaborate it. That's the
2: threshold that was set out there. So no threshold at all.
5: I'm, I'm just wondering, we've, we've spent a fair bit of time uh, talking about um, international legal obligations. Yes. And, and just bef- before I leave that, I wonder whether it, it really is quite properly the way to look at it as opposed to looking at what the statute says because it's the statute which says this is to be given effect in accordance with the legal obligations but let me pass to what I think is is not uh, uh, the whole business about the, the refugee convention seems to me is a secondary issue fascinating to some less so to me and the the whole idea that on uh, arguments that were squarely before the IAD, so there's no question of should, they thought of should they have thought about something that wasn't put to them. I'm gonna focus on what was put to them, and that is that uh, this provision needed to be read in light of the other provisions in that section all of which had a certain character or nature or range of, of activities, context, right, which which was similar. And the IAD just dodged it, it seems to me, by using a very formalistic, textualistic argument. I've been, Accused of formalism and textualism, but I'm today going to be the champion of contextualism. And and I, I, it, it seems to me that the, the the strongest argument mounted against the reasonableness of of this decision is that that argument was put to the board, and they just skirted it, and 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 in the end, all they did was say it doesn't say national security in the words used in that provision. Therefore, it's not a requirement. And that's that's a very literalist reading. And there's nothing wrong. I have to start with the text. But it's like they avoided the context, and they never explained, other than this sort of dodge about um, consistent usage, which I find strained at best. They just never dealt with it and and if you can't in find in the reasons and i'm struggling to find it there a clear response why the principal argument put to you cannot succeed if you if you've kind of skirted that issue it, it seems to me you've just failed to justify your reasons they just asserted read the provision it says what it says we're going to give it a literal meaning. There's your answer, and 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 that's not text, context, and purpose. Um, just to show I'm not uh, again. I,
11: I think my friend. I'm going to yield to her in very short order. Uh, we'll probably develop this in more detail. But to answer your question briefly, um, we say that um, the IAD did. Do exactly that. There was, it's true, very little legislative history that was before him. He made it clear why he didn't accept uh, the arguments around the definition of security relevant to other acts and how they're used, um, and the fact that the use of security isn't used consistently in these other acts. Um, he wasn't persuaded by the argument that 341 e had to be interpreted to national security uh, just because some of the other sub provisions within that. Uh, section 34 do he gave a reasoned explanation in our submission about why that's not the case Um, referencing uh case law so i don't see that that's a dodge at all uh i don't think it's more of a dodge it's a different interpretation than um member king uh but i don't i don't i don't consider that a dodge um and as i said with respect to international obligations Uh, They they simply weren't germane here for the reasons I said. Um, And I want to turn it over to my colleague, um, Counsel Ray, who's gonna address uh, themselves to the issue of reasonableness. There there are a number of arguments I didn't get to about certified questions and others that were raised by interveners vis-a-vis standard review, but I don't want to take up uh, more time. Uh, Perhaps we'll try to touch on that in the five minutes we have in reply. Uh, but there are a number of things I wanted to get to, but I'm going to yield to my colleague, uh, Councilor Ray.
12: Chief Justice, Justices, I hope that in uh, my submissions here this morning, I'll be able to address a number of the issues that have been raised through the questions. Um, I have four points I'd like to touch on. I think with those four points, it's going to hit, um, a lot of the questions that have been asked, um, but uh, we shall see as we go. Um, the first point I'd like to raise uh, is that uh, in the ERPA, and this is something that was identified by um, the IAD, the term security is not used synonymously with the term national security or the term security of Canada. The second point is that paragraph E, and this is the threshold question, is aimed at violent conduct, and it doesn't capture minor harms. And that is something that I believe is set out in the IAD's decision as well, and we'll go through that. The IAD's interpretation, this is the third point, is also supported by IRPA's inadmissibility scheme as a whole. And again, that is set out in the IAD's decision. And the final point I'd like to touch on is that the interpretation from the IAD is not contrary to Canada's international obligations. And you've heard um, my colleague uh, on that point, and I hope to elaborate on that for you. The first point then- Could I ask you to, I don't want to
4: cut you off, but one thing that speaking for myself, I'm concerned about is whether there are serious repercussions that the inadmissibility finding could have on mr mason if the acts are eventually attributed to him and the fact that vavilov specifically directs the decision maker in the event that there are such serious repercussions that the justification for the reasons should be explicit on that so i'd like if, if there's room for a number 5 in there i'd like to hear that
12: I could certainly address that uh, right now, actually. Um, the consequences um, are considered by the IAD, and the way in which they're considered is through its examination of Section 36, the other uh, provision that it looked at in the inadmissibility scheme. What it was doing there is responding to the arguments by Mr. Mason that the consequences to him if they were to accept this interpretation would be far greater under Section 37 than they would be under Section 36. And the IAD directly addressed that by noting the distinct differences in terms of the types of inadmissibility that Section 36 is aimed at versus Section 37. I actually think that's a very key point here that we haven't touched on today, and that's that ERPA does not have just a single class or category of inadmissibility. There are two types of inadmissibility in ERPA. There's inadmissibility that's based on conduct, and that's what Section 37 is aimed at. Uh, sorry, that's what Section 34 is aimed at and why 37 came to mind for me, is because that's also what Section 37, the organized criminality provision, is aimed at. It's aimed at conduct. It's not aimed at the commission of an offense, which is the second category of inadmissibility that's set out in the IRPA, is a commission of an offense, and in the case of serious criminality, um, if that offense occurs in Canada, there has to be a conviction. Section 36, with respect to offences committed in Canada requiring a conviction, is actually the outlier here. That's the only provision within the IRPA inadmissibility scheme that requires both the commission of an offence and a conviction. The comparison of Section 34 to Section 37 is actually far more apt, because Section 37, the Organized Criminality Inadmissibility Provision, does not require any form of um, connection to a commission of an offence. It does not require that a conviction has occurred. And it certainly does not require a nexus to national security or to the security of Canada. So in that way, the conduct um, is much more similar. But can I stop you here and
8: and when we look at those um, uh, interpretations, I mean, I'm I'm struck by the fact that this hasn't been decided yet, um, that uh, we hear that Section 34 is not used in a blanket way, even though it would be perhaps the widest provision imaginable uh, on which to render somebody inadmissible, because it would only, according to the IAD, if it doesn't have a security nexus requirement, then you would read it the way that it is, and it would be to engage in an act of violence that would or might endanger the lives or safety of people. That is very wide, um, and it begs the question why people or, or why the ministry would go under Section 36 of serious criminality if it always had this breadth of, a dis, uh, of an interpretation open to it under Section 34. And when we look at Vavilov and the repercussions aspects and the consequences, uh, many interveners talk about the the uh, very chilling consequences that would happen to Mr. Mason and to a whole spate of people in the country who have never been convicted of a criminal offense. And that they're in, whether it's a... Um, um, a, a uh, a stayed charge or a charge not taken, or what? This is the widest possible approach that could be taken there, and and surely that's that's problematic. And uh, just let me add this: that Section three three under the IRPA also states that a mandatory interpretive norm is compliance with charter rights, and it would seem to me that uh, the breadth of the provision that IED is proposing here uh, does tend to call into question um, the incredible impact on people in Canada who have not been convicted and cannot or haven't been convicted of a criminal offence. So. Um, How how is it that this wide interpretation is now a possibility? And what would happen to people like Mr. Masons if this uh, is an interpretation that's deemed to be reasonable uh,
12: and endorsed? There are a number of of questions to unpack there. Um, To begin with, I don't agree that the interpretation from the IAD is a wide interpretation. It is expressly stated it is not so by the IAD themselves. They expressly state that this provision at Para 36 that my uh, colleague has already taken you to, this provision is narrowly defined, narrowly defined. It is not widely defined. It is narrowly defined and they use the word anchored. It's anchored in the danger posed to Canadians. That, at the very least, is a strong indication that the IAD felt that this provision is not to be construed widely. It is, in fact, to be seen as a narrow provision that has violence at its core, and I think that's key. Violence is, of course, in the text, but that is indeed the focal point of this provision. It is about danger. And to illustrate this point, I think we can go to... I'm sorry sorry
0: to interrupt here, but uh, with respect, I don't think that was the question. The question was, it's surprising that a provision like uh, 34E, 1E, is not used, whereas this is the largest uh, category of, 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 of cases that could be used, whereas people will go to 37. That was the question. How come?
12: I'm not sure I can speculate on how come the provision has not been used very frequently, Um, and I'm not sure that that has any bearing on the reasonableness or not of this interpretation. Um, The fact that it has not been used very often, I think, is not a factor in that assessment. Um, The minister, of course, is not um, required to wait, for example, for a proceeding Uh, in the criminal context, to have concluded uh, before taking um, an inadmissibility decision under Section 34 or Section 37 or any of the conduct-based inadmissibility provisions. At the same time, the minister would be entitled to to, um, address inadmissibility under both provisions simultaneously. I'm I'm going to put
5: it to you. The IAD rewrote the statute the iad uh, knew where they were going and they got to where they wanted to get and that is they wanted the ability to say that persons where there was good evidence that that uh, persons in canada had engaged in criminal activities but no conviction was entered uh violent criminal activities that would be a basis to find them inadmissible that's not what 36 said so therefore, they went to 34 and we said, we'll pull this one over and, and, and use it uh, because we can't do it under 36. And in fact, they, they made a policy choice that parliament had not. And that's another reason why I think it's very questionable is the reasonableness of this uh, interpretation, this decision by the IAD.
12: I think in fact, quite the opposite is true. They were very faithful to the inadmissibility scheme in the IRPA. Section 36 is a very distinct, different type of provision. And that's what I was trying to get at with respect to these different classes of inadmissibility that are addressed within the IRPA. Section 36 is clearly uh, anchored in, if we want to use that same language, um, the length of jail sentence. That is the marker of seriousness in Section 36. And what's the, mar- what's, the, what's, the mark,
2: what's the marker in Section 34?
12: And that's what I was going to get right. to. We have a very different marker of seriousness in Section 30, 34, and that is violence. It is about violent conduct that it's not, Is it not about, consular uh,
3: yeah. Section 34, is it not about more national security grounds and not uh, only violent conduct?
12: The entirety of the section is based, of course, on security grounds. And the other provisions within Section 34.1 do indeed speak to national security. Um, I think that that's common ground, that the other co-text, if you will, um, of uh, paragraph E, the other paragraphs, speak to national security uh, conduct. Paragraph E speaks to public safety-related conduct. And what the IAD does is that it it analyzes the term security because it's trying to understand, is security wide enough to capture both national security and public safety components? And there are a number of reasons given for yes, they, they conclude it is wide enough, And, in fact, they do look at the King decision twice within their reasons, and this is one of the points they look to it for, and they disagree with Member King on this point. They disagree with Member King's finding that security must be construed very narrowly to only mean national security. The primary reason they disagree with that is because Member King didn't look to the way in which the term national security and security of Canada are used throughout IRPA. They're used differently. Security is used differently. The terms are not used synonymously throughout the IRPA. Council, can but I take was you back? That key in rejecting the King decision.
2: Can I take you back? You, you, you hadn't quite finished um, answering the question about the standard stated in 341 e the standard of seriousness. Tell me what it is again.
12: It's violence that's anchored in a danger posed to the life or safety of Canadians. what I wanted anchored to mean? illustrate what, that. What does anchored through, mean?
2: What does anchored mean? Because I'm looking at the statute and it says that would or might, might endanger. Yes. So it's not even something yes. that necessarily endangers, it's something that might endanger. Did the IAD address that?
12: It addressed that to the extent that it is um, showing us it is to be a narrow definition it didn't address the I agree that it did not address um, the uh, specifically the forward-looking okay. uh, temporality if you okay, will, and, and you would also um, you'd also mention
2: committing acts of violence but that's not what it says it says engaging in yes. acts engaging in acts of violence uh, did they did they did they consider whether there's a distinction between engaging in acts of violence and committing acts of violence,
12: they did not consider that distinction. Mm. Engaging is the phrase, and, and I'm, if I misspoke and said no. committing, um, that that's certainly on me. Well, that's isn't isn't not part of the answer the to, to this? this pa-
6: isn't part of the answer to this posed in paragraph 12 of the decision, where they say, assuming the the, act, the respondent committed the acts, they are certainly acts of violence that endanger the lives or safety of persons in Canada, and we're talking about somebody pulling out a gun and shooting at people in a bar. So that is the conduct that's being spoken about. They didn't need to deal with every situation. But in in respect of paragraph 36, I'd like to come back to that and Justice uh, Martin's question about whether the acts are narrowly defined and what that means. When I read the last sentence of paragraph 36, it's awkwardly worded because it says narrowly defined and anchored in the terms of danger posed to Canadians. And then it draws the contrast not to criminal law. So it's not saying necessarily, as I read it anyway, it's drawing a distinction between immigration consequences and criminal consequences. And that's what, it's, that's what it means by narrowly defined. It's obviously uh, drawing a distinction between immigration consequences, and, and that's what the whole of the paragraph is speaking about. So I wonder whether there might be some ambiguity or misconstruction about what the i i d meant in that last sentence that's you know, at the nub of this issue about how broad or narrow the conduct is?
12: Well, I think something else that may be helpful here is another um, um, comment made by the IAD with respect to the comparison to Section 36, and that is the IAD said that this provision, paragraph E, would capture a smaller subset of the conduct that would be captured under paragraph 36. And again, we're seeing a narrowing, um, an intentional um, discussion by the IAD that this provision, paragraph E, is not intended to be applied so broadly. The threshold is is much higher than what the appellants have made it out to be as um, basically any kind of minor uh, form of, schoolyard brawl um, that's not the intent excuse me that's not the intention of this provision um, and i've been wanting to draw the court's attention to the decision of the id with respect to mr de because in that decision we actually see the threshold at work and we see how the id applies the threshold of the iad to the particular facts in Mr. DeLau's case. Um, Mr. DeLau had gone before the IAD and argued that the IAD's decision was wrong, that 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 threshold was too low and that the harms that he had committed didn't rise to the threshold that would, would have been necessary. And, and the ID disagreed. And I think what's really important is looking at the um, extensive body of evidence upon which the ID relied for its findings of fact, and its findings of fact with respect to the violence committed by Mr. DeLau are extensive, um, and they're serious, serious acts repeated acts of intimate partner violence. And so I raise this only to illustrate that um, that is uh, one decision, that in fact is the only decision we have to date, um, of applying the threshold from the IAD.
3: Ray, I have a question for you. Uh, you know I presume the Citizenship Act and the inadmissibility regime under the Citizenship Act?
12: I personally am not familiar uh, oh. with, with the nuances of that. I'm not sure I could, could answer your question, but I, I will certainly try.
3: Okay, so there is a provision in the Citizenship Act about inadmissibility, and it refers to Section 34, 35, 37 of the IRPA and also to Section 36. And they seem to create, to, to consider uh, Section 34, 35, and 37 requiring more serious uh, violence than the Section 36. In fact, the regime is different for 34, 35, 37, and for Section 36. So, uh, and they are talking about security grounds for 34-1, the entire 34 35, 37. They are not making the distinction that you are making. So. Is, is this an incoherence between the IRPA and the Citizenship Act in terms of inadmissibility or not?
12: Um, I think that, that the way you're describing it is the distinction that I'm making in the sense that um, the, most, um, the way I see the serious consequences with respect to this particular case is that they tell us something about the threshold that is required as well that serious consequences that flow from, and and no one is is arguing against the fact that serious consequences flow from a finding of inadmissibility under Section 34, but the seriousness of those consequences is telling us something about what Parliament intended with respect to the kinds of acts that would be captured under paragraph E. What would they be?
9: Again, I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure I've understood your answer. That you seem to just read back the words when when Justice Brown asked you, how would you
12: describe this elevated threshold of seriousness? And and in, in some respects, I think I can only read back how the ID has construed that provision, which is to say it is narrowly defined and that it's anchored in the danger posed to Canadians. And I can also only rely on the words of the text which expressly reference violence Um, and violence I think is a key phrase there. How that is um, applied and interpreted with respect to the scope is going to be dependent on every individual situation that comes before a decision maker involving this provision. There will be um, as there was in the the DeLau um, case, a grappling with whether or not the acts that are before the decision maker um, are violent. Are they endangering lives and safety? Um, And as Member Coe in that ID decision for Mr. DeLau said, um, Member Coe said, um, you know, this is about a narrow definition. This is not about um expanding this to include any and all types of um bad conduct
4: it's not that it Um, i see here i'm so i'm so sorry i'm just following up on the questions that started with justice martin and have been following it's not that it the violence um endangers the lives or safety it's would or might the french text is even seemingly more expansive susceptible de mettre en danger. It's, it's a sweepingly wide, at, at least on its face, n- not anchored in a conviction, not anchored in the criminal law as as the IAD um, decision maker said. So so, so I am i am am just trying to, to to understand how that fits as against 36 for example
12: Well I think uh, I, I'm not sure how many, um, how many different ways I, I can say what I think I'm saying is the same thing over again is that that the key factor here is we're dealing with a smaller subset of conduct than would fall under section 36 and we're dealing with acts multiple acts of violence, that endanger, or will, or may, the lives and safety of Canadians. Um, I don't think that um, there is anything in the IAD decision that gives us more clarity on that. With respect to the scheme of the inadmissibility provisions as a whole, I think the clarity that's provided is again through the, the knowing that the consequences attached to this provision are some of the most serious which leads us to understand that the threshold must be higher. I have um, very, very little time left, and I have not addressed um, our position on Canada's international obligations. They are set out in our factum, but I will just say and reiterate that a finding of inadmissibility is not a finding that an individual will be refouled. The Refugee Convention does not have application to the finding of inadmissibility here. Um, and we would, we would strongly um, uh, argue against the, um, many of the arguments that have been made by the interveners with respect to the application of the Refugee Convention.
0: All right. Thank you very much. Uh, the court will take a 15-minute break. The court, la cool. Thank you, let me be seated, please. <coughs> Judeum.
13: Good afternoon, Ontario intervenes on this appeal to address the appropriate method employed by a court reviewing an administrative decision-maker's statutory interpretation on a standard of review of reasonableness. Consistent with this Honourable Court's decision in Vavilov, Ontario's position is twofold. One, the court's robust reasonable review includes ensuring the interpretation is consistent with established principles of statutory interpretation and two, the reviewing court may require tribunals to resolve conflicting interpretations. On the first point, it is common ground that judicial review functions to maintain the rule of law while giving effect to legislative intent. There are two aspects of legislative intent that are relevant. The legislative intent to delegate decision-making powers to an administrative decision-maker and a legislative intention underlying all statutes that they will be interpreted in accordance with established principles of statutory interpretation. The reviewing court has a dual role. It must show deference to the statutory decision maker. However, it must also ensure that the decision maker has arrived at a reasonable meaning that can be said to carry out the legislative intent underlying the statutory provision at issue. The balance between deference and inquiry in a robust, reasonable review is achieved as mandated by Vavilov by starting with respectful attention to the decision-maker's reasons. It is through the reasons that the reviewing court considers, assesses, and confirms whether the interpretation reasonably accounts for the essential elements of the statutory provisions text, its immediate and larger statutory context, and its purpose as per the modern approach to interpreting statute adopted by this honorable court in Rizzo's shoes. Where the interpretation is inconsistent with an essential element and no reasonable explanation has been provided to explain why it is nevertheless reflective of legislative intent, the decision is unreasonable. It fails to bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, namely justification, transparency, and intelligibility. More specifically, it fails to be justified in relation to the relevant legal constraints that bear upon it, which include the principles of statutory interpretation. In the circumstances, the court must intervene. It may choose to send the matter back to the administrative decision maker with reasons, or in cases where only one reasonable interpretation is possible, determine the meaning of the provision. Respectfully, this is not disguised correctness review. As Justice Abella said in Vavilov, reviewing courts are entitled to meaningfully probe the decision because deference stems from respect, not inattention to detail. If, however, the interpretation does account for all essential elements of the text context and purpose, then the court should not intervene. On the second point, It is Ontario's position that permitting conflicting or inconsistent interpretations of the same statutory provision by a tribunal is unreasonable and threatens the rule of law, in that it permits the law to become arbitrary depending on the identity of the decision-maker. Notably, provincial tribunals and other provincial administrative decision-makers cannot resort to the type of reference available to federal tribunals under the Federal Courts Act. While the AG, the Attorney General of Ontario, is entitled to be heard on an application for judicial review, pursuant to Ontario's Judicial Review and Procedures Act, this is not available to provincial tribunals, nor it is it a reference, nor does it change the applicable standard of review. In the narrow circumstances, where a tribunal has adopted conflicting interpretations of a statutory provision, and there are no other means within the statutory scheme to resolve the conflict. The reviewing court should refer the matter back to the tribunal to resolve the conflict in accordance with its reasons, or as stated previously, in cases where only one reasonable interpretation is possible, determine the meaning of the provision. To conclude, in our respectful submission, this reflects an appropriate balance between protection for the rule of law and deference to an administrative decision-maker's delegated authority. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Joanna Van Paris.
14: Thank you, Chief Justice. The Attorney General of Saskatchewan asks this Court to continue its journey toward greater simplicity and clarity in administrative law. This appeal is an opportunity to provide guidance regarding internal standard of review where the legislature has established a right of appeal or review from one administrative decision maker to another. To that end, Saskatchewan proposes establishing presumptive standards of review for internal appeals. And to be clear, Saskatchewan is not taking any position on what the outcome should be on the facts of this case, but is just providing one possible approach to determining what standard of review an appellate administrative decision maker should apply. The presumptive standard of review would depend on the court's supervisory role, creating consistency across the administrative pyramid. So where the governing legislation provides for a statutory right of appeal to a court, the appellate decision-maker would also apply the appellate standards of review. And where the governing legislation does not provide for a statutory right of appeal to the court, the appellate decision-maker would apply judicial review standards of review. And these presumptions would be rebutted where the legislature explicitly prescribes the applicable standard of review. Establishing presumptions for internal standard of review encourages parties to focus on the merits of the decision rather than on litigating standard of review. For example, the favorite approach in Saskatchewan to internal standard of review is to conduct what the Court of Appeal has termed a full exercise in statutory interpretation. However, requiring litigants and administrative decision makers to conduct this type of analysis to determine the standard of review is akin to the former contextual analysis established in Dunsmuir. And a similar exercise that was deemed too unwieldy for the courts does not lend itself to litigants who may not be represented by counsel and to decision makers who may not be lawyers. In addition, the unpredictable nature of the contextual analysis was one of the fundamental problems addressed in Vavilov. Litigants cannot predict with confidence what standard of review will be applied, nor can they conduct a proper analysis of the relative merits of appealing a decision to an internal decision maker. This court in Vavilov noted that litigating standard of review was an often costly endeavor that failed to promote access to justice. And this uncertainty on the approach to internal standard of review undermines one of the fundamental reasons as to why the legislature chooses to vest decision-making authority into different bodies. And that's the ability to access streamlined, specialized and timely justice. Implementing these presumptive standards of review would echo the goal stated in Vavilov of focusing on the merits of the decision. Now, an alternative approach to internal standard of review that this court might take would be to simply apply appellate standards of review to all internal appeals. And we do know that this court in Vavilov indicated that the word appeal had the same meaning in different contexts. However, that concerned appeals to a court and not appeals between administrative decision makers. In addition, applying appellate standards of review would create inconsistency where internal appeals have been limited in some fashion by the legislature. And this case demonstrates that type of inconsistency. Here, the minister has a broader right of appeal to the IAD than the appellants. So for example, the appellant Delu was not able to appeal the immigration division's decision to the IAD, but pursued judicial review in the federal court. So, if appellate standards of review applied, and the minister wished to appeal the ID's decision to the IAD, any questions of law would be reviewed by the IAD on a correctness standard. If Mr. Delu wanted the ID's decision reviewed, the very same question of law would be reviewed by the court on a reasonableness standard. So, simply put, different standards of review should not apply to different parties based on their access to an internal appeal mechanism. So in conclusion, Saskatchewan's proposed presumptions would simplify the law and help fulfill the promise of better access to justice articulated by this court in Vavilov. And to borrow a phrase from the intervener Social Planning Council, this will help render the law intelligible to those who use it most. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much.
7: Chief Justice, Justices, I will focus my submissions on one argument. The interpretation of statutory provisions incorporating or engaging the Refugee Convention are questions of law of central importance to the legal system. They ought to be reviewed on a correctness standard. In Vavilov, this court acknowledged the rule of law problem created when individual decision-makers have different interpretations of the law. Yet. This court declined to recognize a distinct category of correctness review to address the issue of persistent discord. The CCR submits that reasonableness review is unable to guard against the threat such arbitrariness poses to the rule of law. This case underscores the point. The FCA invoked Vavilov and engaged in reasonableness review to uphold an interpretation that strips the national security nexus from Section 341e. In doing so, the FCA entrenches the prospect of persistent discord by explicitly allowing multiple, variable, and inconsistent interpretations to coexist. Now, as demonstrated at paragraphs 3 to 5 of the CCRS Factum, and paragraphs 104 to 110 of the Appellant Earl Mason's Factum, through the interplay of sections 101F and 101.2, eligibility to access Convention refugee protection may thus be dependent on the identity of the decision-maker. The legal incoherence that was considered as a hypothetical in Vavilov is fully and clearly realized the consequences are profound. One refugee claimant may receive protection while another identically situated claimant may be refouled. You don't have to create a distinct category of correctness review to address this problem. You can revive a prior line of authority concerning human rights instruments within the category of fundamental questions of central importance to the legal system. Before Vavilov and Dunsmuir, this court applied a correctness standard to the interpretation of human rights instruments. The rationale was firmly anchored to the rule of law. Such instruments raised fundamental legal questions because of the values they enshrined and the interests they protected. In Simpson Sears, Justice McIntyre wrote, legislation of this type is of a special nature, not quite constitutional, but certainly more than ordinary. And it's for the courts to seek out its purpose and give it effect. The Refugee Convention is one such human rights instrument. In Nemeth, this court affirmed that the Refugee Convention had an overarching and clear human rights object and purpose. Yet in Dunsmuir and Vavilov, the court appears not to have considered the issue of human rights instruments within the fundamental legal questions category. This is particularly notable for two reasons, first, Both Dunsmuir and Vavilov rely on Justice LaBelle's commentary in Toronto City and QP to identify the category of questions of central importance to the legal system. Yet, it is in that very case where Justice LaBelle notes at paragraph 67 that human rights questions are fundamental legal questions. He states in part, certain fundamental legal questions, for instance, constitutional, and human rights questions are of central importance to the legal system and typically fall to be decided on the correctness standard. Second, the court at paragraph 60 and 61 of Vavilov catalogues relevant jurisprudence to provide guidance on what questions of law are and are not central to the legal system. Curiously, human rights questions as a category are not addressed either way. Correctness review for human rights questions should not have been displaced from the fundamental legal questions category. Justice LaBelle's guidance cannot so significantly inform one aspect of correctness review without considering its effect to another. The Convention aims to protect those at risk of serious harm. The impact of Convention refugee determinations are significant, and the consequences of inconsistent interpretations are irreversible. Such fundamental legal questions require a single determinate answer. And for the rationale expressed in Vavilov, only correctness review can provide the certainty required by the rule of law.
0: Thank you very much. Jacqueline Swisland. <clears throat>
15: Chief Justice, Justices. Because this appeal comes by way of a certified question, the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers submits that it is important that this Court grapple with the applicable standard of review of certified questions in light of the framework that was set out by this Court in Vavilov. It is Carl's position that Parliament enacted the certified question to address the need for certainty in the immigration context. Carl urges the Court but, but to But isn't give effect the whole certified
5: the questions procedure simply a procedure? It's it's a procedural vehicle. It doesn't change the nature of the inquiry, or does it? Simply by the form of the procedure, you're telling us that it changes the nature of the inquiry.
15: That, that is what we are submitting, Justice Rowe. We're submitting that, and as found by this court in push that the intention of the certified question regime, Parliament's intent was that uh, the appellate court, the Federal Court of Appeal apply, like provide a definitive answer to questions raised. It's not just a trigger as was set out, um, and I, I think this refers back to the Supreme Court's decision in at That that idea that it's a trigger was dealt with in the context where the Federal Court of Appeal said, at that time, only the issue raised on the certified question could be addressed by the court. You know, we're, we're far past that. We recognize that that's not the case. And when you look back to the intention that it, um, was specified by parliament, um, specifically in this court, in, in the only decision where it has actually assessed the intention of that provision, uh, I would submit to you that that um, it's been established that the legislature's intent was not for it to be merely procedural, but for it to um, provide guidance that the, the court of appeals should provide definitive answers.
3: Council, what, what do you respond to those who are of the view that this is not relevant? Because in Vavilov, we were dealing with a certified question and we used the reasonableness standard of review.
15: So that is correct. It obviously did come by way of a certified question, but but the Court of Vavilov didn't mention the certified question. It certainly didn't assess whether the certified question should be a correctness category. Uh, and it's Carl's position that when the principles in framework outlined in Babelov are applied to the certified question regime uh then a new correctness category is warranted and, and following the same justifications in fact all the justifications that were set out in the SOCAN case they similar apply uh, to the current case okay. so Carl has has three reasons for this so so first is that that legislative intent has already been established by this court in Pushpanath and the only court to have indicated and assessed what the legislative intent of that provision are Later courts have looked at that intention in the context of, of addressing the entire administrative decision, but it's only this court in, in Pushpanathan that identified that specific legislative intent. And given this court's renewed focus in Vavilov on Parliament's institutional design choice, uh, Carl says that that legislative intent should be given effect. Also, you need to look at the context of the ERPA. You probably couldn't craft more perfect conditions for the creation of inconsistent decision-making and indefinite discord. Under the IRPA you have hundreds of thousands of decisions being made every year by a vast array of decision makers in very different contexts, all interpreting the same provisions. Perhaps most importantly, these decision makers fall under independent and parallel authorities, including two separate ministers and Canada's largest administrative tribunal. These authorities don't have to talk to each other, and there is no mechanism to ensure consistent decision making between them. As a result, the IRPA structure raises concerns about inconsistencies between administrative decision makers. You could have an independent IRB member come to one reasonable interpretation, an enforcement officer under the Minister of Public Safety come to another, and you could have a visa officers overseas under the Minister of Citizenship and Immigration come to a third reasonable interpretation. And there would be no way to reconcile those decisions on a reasonable standard of review. This is the context in which Parliament created the Certified Question Provision. The Certified Question Provision provides a practical mechanism that's embedded in the Act that helps to ensure that questions of general importance are answered consistently between all of these decision makers. Unlike the more general reference mechanism, we know from experience that when correctness review is applied to the Certified Question Regime, it effectively resolves interpretive disputes as Parliament intended. The Federal Court of Appeal and many academics have noted that from Pushpanathan to this court's decision in Tran and B10, this court has at least functionally been applying correctness review to certified questions. Even in cases like Baker and Kansas-Sammy, where this court noted that despite the certified question, the administrative decision as a whole should be decided on a reasonable standard, this court still conducted a de novo assessment of the statutory interpretation issues that arose out of the certified question. What
6: does one do and with car- the, fact, the fact that the question that uh, Justice Grammont certified in paragraph 70 was whether it was reasonable to interpret section 34 1E of the Act. Um, so, that, I mean, there, one could say that there's two ways a question could have been certified. One was to provide guidance on the, on the standard of reasonableness. One was to give a correct interpretation. He seems to have uh, uh, opted for the, the uh, possible question based on reasonableness.
15: That's correct, and that comes from the Federal Court of Appeals direction in Camayo, where this court, after noting that, you know, um, asking, like, the certified question was essentially rendered mere surplusage if it was um, assessed on a reasonable basis, the court essentially created a workaround and said, okay, well, since we can't answer them yes or no, as we have for the last 20 years, um, we're going to set them up so that they're asked on a reasonable basis. But I would submit Justice Jamal that, that does, that's not in line with the legislature's intent. Uh, Pushpin, the court in then indicated it would be incoherent to, to continue with that methodology, essentially. Um, and it doesn't solve the mischief that Parliament intended the certified question to resolve, which is to provide consistent direction, a definitive answer to those questions that are indicated by the federal court are of a, of a general importance. Thank you very Thank much. You.
0: Thank you. Brendan barnes Trickett.
16: Good afternoon. Justices, I'm going to set aside the submissions that I had intended to make, and uh, you have our written arguments, and instead give the minutes I have here to addressing a question, or series of questions, rather, that were posed uh, to my learned friends, Ms. Olmsted and Mr. Morris. And this would be the, uh, initially, the question of Justice Brown uh, regarding the consequence of the administrative decision-maker not having all of the arguments germane to the determination that it is to make before it, at the time that the decision was made. And and that theme was also addressed in questions uh, by Justice Karakatsanis and Justice Cote to uh, my friend representing the Minister for Citizenship and Immigration. And I I echo the submissions that were made uh, by Ms. Olmsted in response to Justice Brown's question that there is certainly an aspect or a valence of access to justice that is relevant to that question, but I would add the following. The genesis or the etiology, if you will, of the reasonableness standard of review comes from the principle that the tribunal or decision maker who is being afforded that deference is a kind of expert and that they have a specialist knowledge that particularly qualifies that decision maker to make the type of decision and analyze the necessary information and form an expert opinion on their own effectively for the purpose of reaching the correct conclusion. That is the basis by which we afford deference to those entities and it dovetails with the legislative framework uh, in that the legislature is seen or is understood in the jurisprudence to afford a level of deference to such tribunals that it constitutes for particular purposes that explore private endeavor being the language that was used by this court in Abramowitz. And so th- that idea that, uh, that there is a deference to expertise, as we all know is a longstanding principle uh, of judicial review, and it is baked into the Vavilov cake at paragraph 31 as being the justification for the presumptive position being one of reasonless review. So it is a, in effect, uh, thorough decision-making it can be said is the price that is paid for an administrative tribunal Uh, to deference, for deference. That's the basic idea. The circumstance that one might imagine, and I'm sensing that this was the the basis of Justice Brown's question, where we wouldn't want to encourage practice among counsel or among applicants to lay in the weeds effectively and allow better arguments to rise to the fore at the level of review or appeal. And I would suggest that the obligation, generally generally speaking, to put one's best foot forward arises in a context where there's parity of the parties in terms of procedural, uh, they're, they're what is available to them by virtue of the procedure, being rights of discovery, being availability of evidence. And the court, as is usually the case, sits as a neutral and intelligent arbiter of a universe of arguments that are brought to the court's attention by parties who, who have parity in the, in the function that they're performing. And so what I'm describing in effect is civil litigation i think that's the genesis of a of the idea that we would be willing for juridical reasons to in effect penalize a party for not taking advantage of their earliest and best opportunity to present an argument and i don't think that maps onto the set of facts that we have here in the present circumstance we have a decision maker who is afforded presumptive deference on the case law as we have it now and is as as was just said a large and sophisticated decision-maker who can be expected and is expected by the legislature and by the courts to have an understanding of the terrain or the lay of the land, to quote Justice Stratus in the decision in the court below, uh, that is necessary to ascertain whether the information is before them or not, or alternatively, to identify the legal arguments that are most germane to the analysis that they have to conduct. And so it isn't, I think, in the present circumstance a case of recognizing that there was some critical consideration that was not before the tribunal and therefore could not enter into by its absence the closed universe of reasonable grounds that it that it considered i, th- I don't think that's the the right formula for the question the tribunal has an obligation in its own right to conduct a reasonable analysis if we accept reasonableness as the standard and part of that deference is understanding that that tribunal should have the ability to reach that conclusion really regardless of the competence or, 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 or of the counsel before it or the evidence that's presented before it. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Nassim Mituvani
17: Chief Justice, Justices, I represent the Canadian Muslim Lawyers Association or the CMLA. We intervene to submit to this court That when interpreting legislation a contextual rather than an abstract perspective needs to be taken this contextual approach is one in which consideration is given to the practical operation of the law on the ground including its effect on vulnerable and marginalized populations as identified in our factum this court has held in a number of cases including Moog, Willick, and Marzetti, that laws are to be interpreted within their social context. These cases repeatedly confirm that the legislature must be deemed to be aware of the historical and social context in which it legislates and operates, and that interpretation of legislative purpose requires sensitivity to the social realities of those affected. Most recently in Kirkpatrick at paragraph 62, this court agreed that interpreting sexual assault provisions of the criminal code narrowly has disproportionate impact on vulnerable groups, including women and members of the trans community. This narrow approach was ultimately rejected in part for that reason. In each of these cases, the court has taken judicial notice of entrenched social phenomena as part of its assessment and endeavored to choose an interpretation that would not contribute to inequities. In the case before you today, you have two separate ways to interpret section 341 e One approach limits inadmissibility to acts that have a nexus with national security. Another widens the net of inadmissibility to capture individuals who may have been charged with, but not convicted of, crimes that involve allegations of violence. In determining which of these competing interpretations is preferable, we submit that the impact of the legislation on marginalized populations needs to be carefully assessed, including how vulnerable these communities are to police interference. We rely on the body of case law from this court, including in Grant and Lee, that accepts that visible minorities, racialized populations, and low-income communities are over-policed. Historic overpolicing of racialized communities is no longer in dispute it is an accepted social phenomenon which can properly be the subject of judicial notice. In the context of this case, the effect of over-policing of racialized populations by definition means that members of these communities have more interaction with police than is necessary. If the section in question here is read broadly, and that is, to capture, in essence, police allegations of violence. Even where such allegations do not result in a conviction, racialized communities stand to lose more than their non-racialized counterparts, given their high frequency of contact with police comparatively. A broad reading of Section 341E will therefore have a disproportionate impact on marginalized communities. The entrenchment of social inequity must be seen to be contrary to Parliament's intent. It would be unacceptable under current rules of statutory interpretation to assume that Parliament meant for a provision to have a disproportionate impact on already vulnerable populations in today's societal context. Parliament must not be taken to intend absurd consequences. Given the profound impact on racialized populations that follows from the interpretation of Section 34 in a broad manner, it follows, therefore, that this Court should prefer the more narrow approach that does not have the impact, that does not have the potential to further entrench inequity against vulnerable populations.
18: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Aviva Bassman.
18: Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees submits that this court should adopt a restrictive interpretation of Section 341E of ERPA, one that requires a clear nexus to national security. As the international agency mandated by the UN General Assembly to supervise states' compliance with the Refugee Convention, UNHCR is concerned that a broad interpretation of 341 e will result in removal of refugees to face persecution contrary to Canada's international obligations. The prohibition of return to persecution, or non-refoulement, is a core obligation under the Convention and is recognized as a norm of customary international law. It applies to all refugees as well as asylum seekers whose status has not yet been determined. Access to a fair asylum process is an essential safeguard to protect refugees. That process must look to the claimant's risk of persecution on a convention ground, for example, based on their political opinion. State parties to the Refugee Convention are required to provide access. The only permissible exceptions to that requirement are for persons who have protection elsewhere. Otherwise, denying asylum seekers an assessment of their risk of persecution is a violation of the Convention. A broad interpretation of 341E will bar individuals from any process where their risk of persecution will be examined. Instead, these individuals will only receive a restricted pre-removal risk assessment, which will not look at their risk of persecution as required by the Refugee Convention. The Convention was carefully drafted to balance refugee protection against the security concern of state parties and includes detailed criteria for who does and who does not attract its protection. It addresses state security and protection of the public through the exclusion provisions of Article 1F and the exceptions to non-refoulement under Article 33(2). For example, persons who have been found Uh, who have committed serious non-political crimes outside of Canada are excluded from refugee protection by definition under Article 1F. As well, under Article 33.2, states are permitted to withdraw protection against refoulement in two limited circumstances. First, where a refugee is regarded as a danger to the security of the host country, and second, where having been convicted of a particularly serious crime, they are regarded as a danger to the community. In this case, it is that first exception, the national security exception that is engaged. It requires that a person pose a very serious danger and significant threats to national security. It's meant to be applied to be invoked against acts that endanger a country's government, territorial integrity, or independence, for example. The exceptions are meant to apply restrictively in light of the overall human rights purpose of the Refugee Convention and the international community's abiding commitment not to return refugees to persecution. Canada, as a lead drafter of the convention in the aftermath of World War II, worked with other states to strike the right balance. And a broad interpretation of 341E that includes criminal activity without requiring either A conviction or a connection to national security therefore does not comply with the Refugee Convention when that broad interpretation is applied to refugees and asylum seekers. Part of UNHCR's mandate is to ensure that the Refugee Convention is interpreted consistently across jurisdictions. As such, UNHCR would not be supportive of an administrative review framework that leads to multiple interpretations of the Convention being upheld as reasonable. Finally, decisions that do not comply with Canada's obligations under the Refugee Convention are inherently unlawful, regardless of whether an individual litigant has raised the issue before the Tribunal. Wait, wait,
5: wait, wait. Say that one again, that failure to comply with uh, an obligation under a convention is an unlawful act under domestic law?
18: Where a, where a decision interprets, uh, interprets uh, a provision that is not consonant with Canada's international obligations, that, uh, that interpretation will not be uh, lawful. And it is the obligation to ensure compliance that obligation to ensure compliance with the Convention falls on state parties specifically. It does not fall on individual asylum seekers. Right,
0: thank you very much. UNA, thank you. Your time is up. Thank you. Dalia shuebar
19: Chief Justice, Justices, Amnesty Canada intervenes to say that Canada's binding international human rights law obligations should not be considered new issues on judicial review. Now, there's been some discussion today about how the constraints in Vavilov interact with a reasons-first approach. Vavilov tells us that constraints set the limits on what a decision-maker can reasonably decide. So, in this way, it's kind of immaterial whether an argument about a constraint was made to the tribunal. A constraint is a constraint, and decision-makers need to abide by them, otherwise they act unreasonably. Vavilov makes clear that international law is an important constraint in some decision-making contexts. Now, there's no dispute that the IRPA is one such context because Parliament has told us so in Section 3. If a court declines to consider that constraint, it risks upholding a decision that is inconsistent with an important constraint and therefore unreasonable, not to mention disregarding Parliament's express direction. It's also important to look at the consequences of not considering international law. The danger is that a court may uphold a decision that puts Canada in breach of its international obligations, and this is significant for two reasons, both of which stem from the presumption of conformity with international law. The first consequence is that it risks interfering with the separation of powers. B10 tells us that interpreting a statute in a way that conflicts with our international obligations risks incursions by the courts in the executive's conduct of foreign affairs, And subjecting canada to censure under international law the second consequence is a practical one it disregards the significant efforts that go into avoiding non-compliance with international law to begin with so before canada incurs a new international obligation our laws are analyzed to see whether we are already in compliance or whether new laws or amendments are needed to bring us into compliance
5: now you've brought up the separation of powers which i think is is very important. I should be brief, I know we have only a little time. It is parliament that is supreme in these matters, is it not? It's not the federal executive, because the executive can ratify a treaty, but it is parliament that makes laws. And if parliament chooses to, it can act contrary to uh, obligations, which obligations are triggered by executive action. Is that not an accurate statement?
19: It is accurate, but I say that it has to be a very high bar to rebut the presumption of conformity because of all the efforts that go into avoiding that very result before ratifying a treaty, uh, as well as um, the fact that uh, it's a very well established presumption that uh, parliament in its own way doesn't want to interfere with the separation of powers by interfering with the the federal executive's prerogative over foreign affairs as well. Um, So, finding that Canada intended not to comply with its obligations both disregards the reality that it usually does intend to comply and risks interfering with the executive's conduct of foreign affairs. Now, a final reason that international law should not be seen as a new issue is that it doesn't fit the description in Alberta teachers on which the Federal Court of Appeal relied. So, whether it's done by a court or tribunal, Statutory interpretation requires looking at the text, context, and purpose of a provision. International law is relevant at the context stage of statutory interpretation. So in this way, it's an argument on an existing issue, not a new one. It goes on to the question of how to interpret the provision. Even if the Can I, can I ask framework. you a question,
2: Ms. Shelley about mm-hmm. the presumption of conformity? Is
19: mm-hmm. it
2: stronger than the presumption of consistent expression?
19: hard to say, you know, uh, comparing two presumptions, but I will point you to Justice LaBelle in Hape when he said there would need to be an unequivocal legislative intent to rebut the presumption of conformity, and that's because of the very significant consequences of putting Canada in breach of its obligations on the international stage, which is something that really should be avoided. Thank you. So. Uh, just on the Alberta teachers' point, just to conclude, you know, the uh, if even if the factors uh, in Alberta teachers do apply, they actually weigh in favour of considering international law arguments, because the meaning and content of Canada's international legal obligations are questions of law. They do not require evidence to resolve. Nor does raising an international law argument cause prejudice to the other side, as they can simply respond to the argument. And I think it's notable that in Alberta teachers itself, as well as Canada Post, the court considered questions of law on judicial review that had not been addressed by the tribunal, and so it's not uncommon or inappropriate to consider different legal arguments on judicial review. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Subod Barati.
20: Good afternoon. <clears throat> I begin my submissions with this scenario Jack and Jill went up a hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack was thrown down and broke his crown and Jill was charged with attempted murder. Jack too is charged when Jill comes tumbling after. So we have two individuals charged with attempted murder. Jill is Canadian, Jack is not. Jill is convicted and incarcerated in a maximum security prison. Jack is not convicted. Nevertheless, he's incarcerated in the same prison as Jill after the CBSA believes He's captured under Section 341E of IRPA. Jill is released after serving her time. Jack remains incarcerated, awaiting removal. And this is the reality of immigration detention. This was not considered by the IAD and the FCA. And this resulted in an unreasonable rejection of the applicability of Section 11 to inadmissibility, despite calling it the heart of the issue. And the reasoning was because immigration consequences are not criminal sanctions. So the IED agrees that Jack shouldn't suffer criminal sanctions since he was not proven guilty, but yet his immigration consequences result in him being in the same maximum security prison. Glass submits that the IED and the FCA's interpretation is unreasonable, but because Section 11 applies. And it applies because, one, immigration detention is a true penal consequence. And number two, it flows from, or in fact, is a probable consequence of being subject to Section 34 admissibility. So number one, the true penal consequence. I mean, this court in Wigglesworth determined that there are two types of penal matters where Section 11 applies. A, those are by their very nature, a criminal proceeding. And this is all that the IED and the FCA consider. They only considered the first part of the test, which is an error in the law. The second part of the test is matters that may lead to a true penal consequence. And this court went on to state that imprisonment is a true penal consequence. So the second part, does immigration detention... Flow, or is it a possible consequence of a Section 341e e admissibility allegation? And I submit, class submits, it's not just a possible consequence, but a probable one. The IRPA is clear. As per Section 552, immigration detention doesn't even require a finding of inadmissibility. An officer may arrest and detain without a warrant on reasonable grounds to believe that someone is inadmissible and a danger. Section 56.3 and 44.4 of ERPA impose certain prescribed conditions. These don't apply to any other inadmissibility proceeding or provision, only Section 34. And that is if an individual is not detained, these prescribed conditions apply. In other words, detention is a default situation. And let's take a practical example, the parties has so far spoken about removal from Canada as a consequence, you know, but what happens before removal? Detention comes first. So Justice Roy, I know you like practical examples. So imagine the CBSA arrests me and alleges that I'm such a danger to the Canadian public that I can't remain in Canada. I have to be removed despite living here for 20 years. My actions are going to harm Canadians. Then the CBSA says, okay, Mr. Brody." You're too dangerous to stay in Canada, but I trust you, it's the holidays, it's Christmas, you can go home. You know, I don't think you're going to do anything during Christmas, I'll let you know when your admissibility hearing is. Or alternatively, let me know when you buy your ticket to go back to whatever country you're from. Or the CBSA arrests me and detains me as a danger until I'm removed. And this is especially the case because danger to the public is the strongest ground for detention. It would be inconsistent for the CBSA to allege inadmissibility under Section 341e for endangering the lives of Canadians and not seek my detention on the, on the danger to the public ground. And this is why um, LAPS submits that the IED and the FCA fundamentally erred in just a wholesale disregard for Section 11.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. Maître Guillaume
21: Bonjour, merci. Euh, l'intervention de l'Acadie porte sur la norme de contrôle applicable quant à des questions d'interprétation de textes législatifs. Dans l'esprit de Vavilov, l'Acadie soumet que la norme devra rester celle de la décision raisonnable. Par contre, le, gre- le degré <coughs> pardon, de déférence qui sera accordé aux décideur devra varier en fonction de certains critères que nous proposons dans notre mémoire. En effet, nous soumettons que, compte tenu de l'ensemble des divers régimes législatifs du droit administratif, Il sera essentiel d'avoir une norme norme adaptée. Nous soumettons que l'intention du législateur, l'expertise et l'exercice de l'expertise du décideur administratif et son degré d'indépendance par rapport à l'objet de la loi devront guider le niveau de déférence à accorder. Finalement, l'Acadie soumet qu'il ne pourra jamais y avoir de coexistence de deux interprétations raisonnables d'une même disposition, Si tel est le cas, la Cour devra trancher laquelle qu'est-ce des interprétations qu'est-ce, qu'est-ce, qu'est-ce est la plus raisonnable. Qu'est-ce
2: que la Cour a dit dans Vavilov à propos de l'expertise?
21: Elle a dit que l'expertise devait être démontrée par les oui. motifs. Et c'est ce qu'on dit aussi dans ce critère-là. On doit pouvoir lire l'expertise, on doit pouvoir la comprendre, la constater et commencer notre réflexion ou l'analyse par les motifs. Je ne dis pas le contraire. Je soumets la même chose où nous suivons Vavilov en soumettant que l'expertise doit être au cœur de de l'analyse.
4: M. Cliche-Rivard, votre dernier point m'intrigue beaucoup, c'est à la page 10 de votre mémoire. Vous dites qu'il pourrait exister plusieurs interprétations raisonnables, mais contradictoires d'une même question de droit. Là, C'est quelque chose qui pourrait se présenter dans notre dossier. Mais vous proposez que la Cour de révision devra déterminer laquelle des issues est, je vous cite, « est la plus raisonnable J'essaie de comprendre comment est-ce qu'on distingue entre la solution raisonnable et la solution la plus raisonnable, sans tomber bien sûr dans la norme de la décision correcte.
21: Je, c'est une excellente question et c'est important pour nous d'aller là en vertu de la primauté du droit parce qu'on avait un problème entre les deux décisions de Trane, entre la Cour d'appel fédérale et celle de la Cour suprême, où finalement Trane nous avait dit qu'il pouvait y avoir plusieurs interprétations raisonnables de la disposition. La Cour suprême finalement évalué que non, qu'il y avait seulement qu'une interprétation raisonnable de l'article 36. Et elle a fait ce travail-là d'analyse au sens de la grille de, de Vavilov finalement en évaluant les ensembles. Des critères, donc, l'objectif de la loi, l'interprétation contextuelle, euh, et, et elle a finalement déterminé qu'il y avait effectivement une seule interprétation raisonnable. Cela dit, dans le contexte de la citoyenneté, pendant des années, nous avons eu trois tests raisonnables qui ont prédominé dans une jurisprudence où, finalement, on avait une série de contradictions et où la primauté du droit n'était pas mise de l'avant. Alors, la Cour devra trancher dans son évaluation laquelle des issues est la plus raisonnable en ce sens où elle répond le plus à l'analyse qu'on comprend d'une disposition législative dans le mécanisme qui est proposé par Vavilov, mais dans celle qui répondra ou qui sera le plus en conformité avec les obligations internationales, avec la charte, avec l'intention du législateur et qui sera plus conforme au contexte contextuel de son analyse euh, de la loi. C'est pas nécessairement quelque chose qui va être facile à faire, mais on ne peut pas se permettre d'avoir un régime législatif dans lequel on permet pendant des années à ce que deux dispositions raisonnable, deux analyses raisonnables continuent de progresser jusqu'à ce que finalement on ait un système où, vous l'avez dit un peu plus tôt, ça dépend devant quel décideur on tombe. Je pense que c'est expressément primordial de la primauté du droit que la Cour s'assure, comme il le fait dans Bavilov, que finalement il n'y a qu'une seule interprétation raisonnable. Mais dans la différence, et à raison de ne pas vouloir utiliser la norme de la décision correcte, il y aura certainement une interprétation qui se rapprochera davantage de celle qu'aurait maintenu la Cour pour des raisons d'analyse, et la Cour devra aller vers cette approche-là sans nécessairement, comme vous l'avez dit, tomber dans le piège de l'interprétation correcte. C'est ce que mais je maître, soumettrais. Mais maître, mais Bien maître, que ce ne soit pas facile à faire, j'en conviens avec la Cour.
3: Mais, mais parfois, on, peut-être qu'on doit appeler un chat un chat, mais quand on dit qu'il y a une seule interprétation raisonnable, Est-ce que, dans d'autres mots, on ne dit pas que c'est l'interprétation correcte?
21: Oui. Cela dit, c'est pour ça que j'essaie de formuler le la plus raisonnable, en ce sens où, dans un régime de déférence avec la norme de contrôle raisonnable que vous que la Cour tend à vouloir appliquer, il est possible, comme la Cour d'appel l'avait dit d'entraîne, qu'il existe plusieurs interprétations raisonnables, auquel cas elle aurait dû trancher, ou elle doit trancher, Laquelle est la plus raisonnable et conforme à l'intention du législateur et aux autres critères? Sans nécessairement tomber en disant que l'autre était incorrect ou que l'autre était erroné, celle qui était la plus raisonnable était celle qui devait être choisie.
0: On a toujours deux raisonnables. Veux dire, euh, mm-hmm. Peut-être que dans ce cas-ci, il y en a seulement une raisonnable. Alors, il n'y a pas le choix à faire.
21: Alors, s'il n'y seulement qu'une interprétation raisonnable, M. Le juge en chef, on maintient celle qui est raisonnable. Mon problème, c'est quand on voit un régime où des juges de contrôle vont évaluer qu'il existe plusieurs interprétations raisonnables, là, on se retrouve à avoir un problème. Mais lorsque l'autre n'est pas raisonnable, comme dans Vavilov, effectivement, la Cour adopte l'interprétation raisonnable qui règle la question légale. Mon problème, c'est quand les tribunaux vont avaliser deux interprétations raisonnables comme on avait en citoyenneté pendant des années, là, on se retrouve à avoir un grave problème de primauté du droit. Je comprends. Merci beaucoup. Merci beaucoup.
0: Kevin Westell. <coughs> Kevin Westell.
22: Thank you, Chief Justice and Justices. On behalf of the CLA, I hope to provide the perspective of criminal defense lawyers to this proceeding. Our position engages squarely with the acknowledgement of Justice Martin from earlier in the hearing that a whole host of individuals will be impacted for allegations that will never result in a conviction as a result of the interpretation of the Federal Court of Appeal. That interpretation of Section 341E has created, we say, an untenable level of uncertainty. And that uncertainty will severely hamstring Defence counsel's purpose in providing meaningful advice to our clients. In interpreting Section 34 we ask this Court to take into account three separate considerations related to the work of criminal defense lawyers and the functioning of the criminal justice system. Number one, the impact of the decision in the Federal Court of Appeals interpretation on defense counsel and their clients, two, the importance and high value of finality within the criminal justice system, and three, the inherent wisdom of affording deference to criminal justice system decision makers when it comes to criminal conduct. Based on the Federal Court of Appeals interpretation, an accused who is not a Canadian national could be found inadmissible based on no more than an allegation. This could mean deportation even after an acquittal or discharge by a judge or in circumstances where Crown Counsel has exercised discretion to stay the proceedings, effectively ending the prosecution without formal consequence to the accused. This dynamic, we say disrupts the scheme that has worked nicely and as is set out in section 36 of IRPA. A scheme that affords defense counsel the opportunity to anticipate with precision the immigration consequences that will arise from proven allegations of common criminality defense counsel work effectively within this regime and fulfill their primary purpose within the criminal justice system to advise and guide their clients toward the best available outcome in all of the relevant circumstances The justice system is otherwise built to foster that role for defense counsel. Section 606 sub 1.1 of the code effectively commands that defense counsel ensure their clients understand the nature and the consequences of a guilty plea. Failing in that regard may trigger negative outcomes for the lawyer, such as professional discipline, civil liability, or a finding of ineffective assistance of counsel and negative outcomes for the criminal justice system at large, such as the withdrawal of a guilty plea. Our justice system is set up, we say, so that it is the legal, ethical, and professional imperative of defense counsel to foresee and advise of the risks our client may face in pleading guilty. The system is meant to promote and encourage that lawyers be informed and provide to their clients meaningful and actionable advice, including regarding immigration consequences. The Federal Court of Appeals interpretation frustrates that aim, we say, by leaving ambiguous how, if at all, different criminal justice outcomes will affect the potential for a finding of inadmissibility under Section 34. It deprives defense counsel from being able to fulfill their obligation to ensure their clients understand the nature and consequences of a guilty plea and is therefore discordant with the code and the justice system as a whole. This court has recognized in cases including Anthony Cook, the utility and essential nature of plea bargaining to the overall functioning of the criminal justice system where the accused and their counsel are able to deal in certainty around the collateral consequences of a plea, that dynamic drives plea bargaining. So what, what, we're,
2: what we're dealing with here is is how a tribunal or rather how to review a tribunal's interpretation or in this case non-interpretation of a statute for reasonableness. And, and we said in Vavilov that 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 the principles of statutory interpretation apply text context purpose i'm assuming that it's your submission that that you're speaking to context i am that seems like a very broad broadly stated context um i mean are they to are they to take judicial notice of this i mean they don't take judicial notice their tribunals but are they i i mean are, are you going to be appearing in front of all these uh, tribunals and, and putting this context in there? Or are, we, are they just expected to know about it? I mean, just how broad is context supposed to go? We heard from another intervener, social context, very broadly stated. Um, how, how far do we go with pointing to things that tribunals should have accounted for without really it looking like disguised correctness review because we're just looking for something that, that that wasn't covered?
22: It's a broad context, but it's well understood. Decisions like Anthony Cook are available to all. That's the law. That's, that's an understanding that plea bargains are important. That's something that's well within the realm of what citizens are expected to take into account of. And I, I don't see a difficulty for a tribunal understanding that the part of the context is defense lawyers doing their job to protect the rights of their clients.
0: All right, thank you very much. Uh, reply, um, Michael Morris.
11: Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to uh, restrict myself to three points brought up by my uh, Friendly interveners, uh, points I did not get to in my standard review uh, portion, that is uh, responsive justification, um, discord, and um, the question of certified questions. So let me get to it very briefly in my five minutes. Responsive justification. So uh, we've heard many arguments uh, today um, that the uh, because of the harsh consequences, this engaged the principle of responsive justification. That's something that we agree with. And that the reasons provided must reflect stakes, and there's a height need for a decision maker to explain why its decision reflects the legislature's intention. However, grafting on a presumption in favor of a single reasonable interpretation that minimizes the impact on the individual does have has no support in law. would introduce incoherence and disparity into the reasonable analysis by illustration in this case paragraph 34 e may apply to person seeking a visa from outside canada someone with relatively no connection it may apply to someone who's lived in canada for a long time or a short time and like many laws the degree of impact depends upon the circumstances in each individual case it would in our submission be confusing and incoherent to have the statutory interpretation turn on how our particular applicant might be impacted by a, de- a decision. Furthermore, provisions like 34 when serve wider public interests such as promoting public safety. How do those uh, get weighed into the, into the mix at all? Or do they simply get ignored uh, in that um, analysis? The obligation of responsive justification does not include an obligation to preemptively anticipate every conceivable argument or additional materials that may be subsequently relied upon in judicial review. Um, and if you look, to answer the question earlier about what is responsive justification, is it the parties that come before the tribunals, is it the grander potential implications of parties unknown, I'd say it's the former, not the latter. If you look at Vavilov's paragraph 133, they talk about the impact of the individual on the individual's right, the person who's appearing in front of the tribunal, and that's what generates the responsive justification of, of greater transparency in terms of reasons. Turning to the issue of discord, we heard a lot about this. um, And uh, in fact, this repeats many lines of arguments already considered in deciding. Sorry, Mr. Morris.
4: Mr. Morris, I I apologize just because I was following your argument. So where is this amplified justification to be found in the IAD decision, specifically the paragraphs that you feel are responsive to 133 134 and 135 of vavilov
11: well in in our opinion the to- you have to look at the totality of it i don't think responsive justification jessica Sierra, means a rote statement i'm considering the impact of this i appreciate it has great significance on you it means that the reasons have to actually grapple with what's uh w- what arguments are being made to them and it has to it is cited to it is subject to a heightened level of justification in that respect. We say it meets that standard. Uh, obviously it's for the court to determine whether it does or not. But you look at the totality. In other words, no it's not really
2: there. We just get the vibe of the thing. <laughs> well,
11: <laughs> I, I, I guess it's our submission is more than a vibe, uh, but uh, that's, that's for the court to determine. But the response of justification, I come back to a word that Justice Brown didn't like I used earlier, holistic. You gotta look at the totality of it. It's not a rote statement. I'm considering impact. It's do they grapple with it? Do they actually deal with it? That's what the heightened concern about responsive justification uh, in our submission is. And and we say it meets it. This court will make its determination. Um, I do want to turn to to discord. We heard a lot about this um, issue, uh, about the potential of inconsistency undermining the rule of law by having different results by different panels. And I remember uh, a question Justice Rowe asked me during the Vavilov hearing, is that your version of rule of law, Mr. Morris, that person A appears and then person B does? So uh, I only remind uh, the court of that question that I don't know that I handled well at that time, was to say that was something that was wrestled with in Vavilov, that this court dealt with in Vavilov. It's a genuine concern. I'm not here to minimize it. But it was answered in Vavilov at paragraph 72, 129, and 139, 31, where the expectation of consistency does not justify imposing a correctness standard for legal questions on which there is persistent discord. Paragraph 72. Tribunals have a variety of tools at their disposal to address concerns about consistency, and the court uh, talked about several of those uh, in the decision in Vavilov at 78. Justice Stratus referenced another one in his decision, the 18.3 reference there are others for example uh, section 159 h where the chairperson of the irb can uh, issue jurisprudential guidelines so there's a host of of tools so um, apart also depart for, departing from long-standing practice or authority absent justifying doing so is a hallmark of potential unreasonableness, and reasonableness and is taken into account uh, in the determination of whether a decision is reasonable or not so in it's part of the analysis, and ultimately, in our submission, an approach that, that trumps administrative decision-makers uh, brings us back to the old jurisdictional line of authority, and in our submission, the rule of law is now better understood as a collaborative project that engages administrative actors as partners rather than and subordinates. I see I'm out of time. I was going to deal with the certified questions in, in two minutes, if the court will indulge me. You have one minute. Okay, thank you. Um, Contrary to the explicit submission of Carl and the implicit submission of the appellants, there is no basis to revisit the law that issues decided by way of certified question do not justify an exception. Uh, if that had been the intention of this court in Vavilov, it would have said so. That, that Vavilov was decided on a certified question, um, and that was decided in Sami three years before Vavilov. Uh, And in Vavilov, there are two ways you derogate from the presumption of reasonableness, by explicitly prescribing a standard review or providing for a statutory appeal mechanism. Section 74D uh, of the IRPA uh, providing for certified questions doesn't. Um, It it, it simply sets out a ground for review. It doesn't set out a standard review. In the same way that appeals to this court come by way of a LEAF uh, provision itself, that lead provision doesn't set out a standard review uh, either. So unless this court wants to completely reverse uh, what it said in Vavilov, uh, that issue was dealt with um, in that case. Thank in you very much. Case. Sorry. Thank you. Uh,
0: reply, uh, Erika Olmsted or Robert Kincaid.
1: So I have two brief submissions to make on reply. One is with respect to the appropriate remedy in this case, and the second is with respect um, to how the Refugee Convention is engaged at this stage. So with respect to the remedy, this Court in Vavilov at paragraph 142 said that it may be an appropriate remedy to make the decision in the review of the case uh, where that particular outcome is inevitable and remitting the matter would serve no useful purpose. And we submit that in asking the court to quash the IED's decision in this case, the effect would be to uphold the IED decision of Member McPhailin. And that decision, we submit, was carefully reasoned in finding the intention of Parliament. It looked at the text, the context, the structure, and the purpose of the Act, and as the first-instance decision-maker that sees inadmissibility cases day in and day out, and that is the only division that presides over detention reviews and so regularly considers the objective of the act with respect to public safety and security. It understood how this provision operates uh, within uh, the the context and the entire act as a whole. Member McPhelan also followed Member King who considered the Refugee Convention and they both were consistent with a past practice of the way the minister has used this provision in a very sparingly way and only ever in the limited context of national security. And so we submit that those decisions appropriately found what Parliament intended, and it would be an appropriate remedy to uphold those decisions and what they found. We submit that the submissions made by the Criminal Lawyers Association are also relevant to a decision on remedy, that anyone going before the criminal courts right now who's seeking to decide whether or not to plead guilty to accept a conditional discharge or to accept a peace bond so that their charges will be stayed, they deserve certainty to be able to have advice from their criminal lawyers of if they could be caught by a broad interpretation of this provision and subject to deportation or not. Um, and Mr. Mason himself has also had the potential consequence of deportation hanging over his heads and the lives of his children uh, since 2012 and he deserves certainty. So the second point is just with respect to the respondent submission, um, that this somehow doesn't engage the Refugee Convention because we're not at the removal stage. Sections one twelve and one thirteen of the Act directly flow. The consequences there directly flow by reference to section thirty four. So section one twelve and one zero one, which says a refugee claim is denied if you're inadmissible because of your the if you're inadmissible on security grounds because of this finding under section thirty four. That flows automatically. And so the person who's finding you ineligible for a refugee claim, they can't look behind that finding. That's automatic. And that goes too with the person who is deciding the pro. So the officer who's looking at the pre-removal risk assessment, they can't look at a risk of persecution they, and, and somehow reinterpret section 34. It was incumbent upon the Immigration Appeal Division to see, OK, section 112 and 113, Those say Section 34, so that is relevant to my decision on the structure of the context and the purpose of this provision and what Parliament intended when I look at Section 3 that sets out all these objectives and asks for a balancing uh, of these objectives. Um,
5: If I I might try to paraphrase this, and I'm trying to be helpful, Um, in making a decision of this nature, which the iad was aware or should have been aware has a variety of potential cascading consequences should not the iad if it were to make a reasonable decision have had regard to those implications and understood the uh, those other elements of the structure of the legislation as properly part of the context in which they made their decision
1: yes and and that's exactly right and in our submission the immigration division members they did understood that cascading uh, effect and and i guess a final note um is the fact that mr mason he was a refugee claimant and he did withdraw his refugee claim because his wife was sponsoring him and it was appeared to be in the final stages of approval so it was only after he he thought he was about to be approved for permanent residence um and and so he withdrew that application that the minister. Uh, wrote the Section 34, an admissibility allegation. And so if he was to be removed, he would have access to a pre-removal risk assessment and a Section 96 risk of persecution wouldn't be assessed. So this does engage him, uh, and the minister conceded that it, 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 this could impact refugee claimants and refugees. Um, and so those are my Thank submissions. Thank you
0: very much. Thank you all for your submissions. The court will, uh, <clears throat> will take the case under advisement. Have a nice afternoon.